What's up, hybrids? Welcome back to another episode of the Phantom Hybrid Podcast. This is Hanako, and I'm here with Anthony, Lori, and Mike. And we are talking about the highly anticipated feature film, Dune. And I say highly anticipated, not just for the general sci-fi community, but this is a movie that Lori has been chomping at the bit to talk about. Like, she has been ready for this movie. And when they delayed it last year, I think we were all a little bummed. But um, yeah, we're going to talk about Dune. And just to preface this, I am, I think, the only one on the podcast who has not actually read the books. I came into... Nope, me too. Okay, so Mike and I came into this uh, kind of blind. I think me more so than Mike. I've seen, okay, I saw them. I've seen the previous movie like multiple times, but I've never read the books. Okay. There's two movies. There's the 1984 uh, De Laurentiis, uh, uh, David Lynch movie. Then Siffy, Sci-Fi Channel in the early 2000s, did a uh, an extended Dune movie remake. And then they also uh, did a mini series, which I would love for us to watch. It's about 12 hours long. It's called Children of Dune. And they combined uh, a couple of books and to make it one uh, series. But that's all the Dune that's on video film that we actually have until this new movie. Okay. Yeah, I only saw the Dune with Sting. Sorry. Sting playing Fayette, yeah. I yeah. will kill him! Completely blind. Because I have not read the books. I had not seen any of the other visual properties for this. Like, I knew nothing about Dune, except for the fact that I know it's a popular book series, and it's something that's been in my to-be-read pile for years, but I came in completely blind. So I have a quick five minute little background and, and I've been chastised by my podcast mate. So I'm going to be very, very not me. Not me. I, I'm all, I'm all about it, but, but our boss isn't. So you just said that we were going to reel you in because I know this is something that once you hit the ground running, you, we will probably have a four hour podcast. So, yes. So, and also guys, I haven't recorded yet, but I am going to do a really intense, about a 30 minute deep dive into all things Dune. Hopefully I can record it maybe this weekend or next weekend. They'll go up separately, but let me get really uh, started here on my quick little five minutes. Hold on. Yes. I, I told Hanako, I'll make a comment about my impressions of the movie. And then you won't hear again from me until the end of the podcast. <laughs> okay, let me let me go to <laughs> talk about I'll go what's coming up. And I'll just let Hanako and, and Lori just have no, at it for the next three hours. we will not hours. do that. We will not do that. But yeah, go ahead, Lori. Okay. Uh, Dune is a uh, science fiction movie that was originally uh, produced and uh, published in 1965 by Frank Herbert. And the Dune book is basically a novel that was written based on Frank's worldview of how ecology and the ecosystem is working. And there's also about different types of people and how they react to their environment and their society. It turned out to be sort of like a, uh, a cult book because a lot of people say that if it wasn't for certain books like Dune, Tolkien, uh, Shannara, uh, we wouldn't have gotten Star Wars. And I kind of agree with that a little bit. I'm also going to throw in Robert Highland's book, Friday, 
and Robert Highland Starship Troopers, uh, a little bit of stuff from um, Octavia Butler also. But basically, it, this book is really was written as a protest about how we were dealing with our uh, environmental issues uh, on the planet. Uh, he was he and Robert Highland uh, were very very much into. Uh, ecology, uh, the environment, uh, freshwater um, reserves. In fact, earlier this year, they actually uh, finally reclaimed a piece of land that Frank had been working on before his death where they have reclaimed it and it is now a park uh, near the area where he lived his final years and it's all cleaned up and everything. So he was a big environmentalist. All right, so basically this book was written in 1965 and it won the very first Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1965, and it won the Hugo Award in 1966. There was a movie in 1984, a 2000 uh, miniseries, and a 2001 film. There was also a 2000 uh, movie that was also based off of Dune. There's been um, video games. There's been D&D role-playing games. There's been a, a lot of interesting things. So basically... The first series of books that were written by Dune, it starts off with Dune. Then the next book is called Dune Messiah. Then we have Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, Chapter House Dune. And then his son, Brian Herbert, along with Kevin J. Anderson, have written a whole series of prequel books. But they finished up the last few books of Dune that he had left when he died. And those books are The Hunters of Dune. Sandwords of Dune and Paul of Dune. Now, I'm just going to briefly go into this because I'm a huge book person. There is a series of books that Brian Herbert and Kevin G. Anderson have written, and there are trilogy books. And the first one that they wrote, they kind of went backwards. The first one they did is called Prelude to Dune. And this takes place approximately 50 to 60 years before the events on Dune happen. And those are house books, meaning the first book is House Atreides, House Harkonnen, and House Carino. House Carino is the last name of the emperor. Then they did a prequel prequel, which was 10,000 years before Dune happened. Now, this is the one that really kicked it off. It's called the Legends of Dune series. And the first book is called the Blutarian Jihad. They recently changed the name to the Blutarian Crusade, uh, the Machine Crusade, and the Battle of Corinth. And then after they did that, they went in and they did one of my favorite book series, which is called The Schools of Dune. In Dune, you've got Mintat, you've got Swordman of Ganaz, you've got the Sardaukar, you've got the, um, the Sukh uh, medical doctors and the navigators. And basically the idea was that in order to tell the background, each book was going to be about a certain school and they settled on three. So you've got the Sisterhood of Dune, you've got Mintats of Dune and you've got Navigators of Dune. Now the newest trilogy, is called the Caladan Trilogy. And that started up last year and it's three books, two books are out. You've got Dune, the Duke of Caladan. You've got Dune, the Lady of Caladan, which came out uh, six weeks ago. And then next year you'll get the Heir of Dune, which comes out, I think it's gonna be next summer. So basically the uh, Caladan Trilogy takes approximately one year before Dune happens. And it's setting up a lot of background of what actually happens in Dune. Uh, this Dune series has been really, really acclaimed. They've written several short stories. The first comic book was Dune, the official comic book in 1984. There, uh, Marvel did some stuff in 85 and 86. 
Uh, there is a new Dune book that Brian and Kevin have written. Uh, it's called Dune House of Trades. The graphic novel series is Dune Blood of the Sardaukar, which is coming out. Um, basically, I found this by listening to a podcast that was done by Wayne Chamberlain and his partner, Jesse, and it was uh, called Sci-Fi Books in Review. Uh, it used to be called Star Wars Books in Review, and they had Kevin J. Anderson on, and they were interviewing him. And I had read him because he wrote the famed uh, Jedi Academy Decology books in uh, Star Wars. That's where people know him from originally. And uh, he started talking about Dune, how they filled in Frank's notes and everything and how they started to write the book. So I started reading Dune in earnest about eight, nine years ago. And I've just been, you know, gone off and ever since. I've listened to all of these Dune series repeatedly uh, at least three or four times. Uh, a side note, and then I'm wrapping up, is that if you don't like the Dune books or if you want to try some more of their writing, both Kevin and Brian have a series, a wonderful series called Hellhole. And it's a series of three books. And it's basically kind of Dune-like where this guy has a revolt and he winds up on literally the last planet uh, in the galaxy. And it's called Hellhole because it's such a nice hospitable place. Uh, it's three books in a series. It's a one-shot trilogy. Um, basically, I adore this, but I'm not going to geek out and I'm not going to spoil anything, but I am going to say that if you really want some really good books to listen to at work that are between 18 and 20 hours long, grab one of the prequel Dune books or grab one of the old books. Um, Children of Dune, God Emperor, uh, Chapter House of Dune, any of those heretics is good. Anything that they do is really good. So hope you guys enjoy. Okay, I have a question. You said that if we have 18 hours at work yes. to listen to that, what do you think I do? I don't, are you kidding? Okay. And, I'm, but, I have a desk job. <laughs> okay, okay, but but second of all, Lori. What? <laughs> I just need to let people know that Lori is the quiet star of this podcast because when we ask her for information, she delivers. And she hits it and she always hits it on the head. And I just want to let you know how much I appreciate your depth of knowledge on this subject. Because I mean, and there are going to be people who listen to this or who are going to be like, oh, snap. And I think Frank Herbert's estate owes you a debt of gratitude and cash for all the people that are going to read this book after they listen to this podcast, because that was really in depth. There was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And I really appreciate everything you said. And I, I actually have a little bit better understanding of both movies. Cause like like you like we said before, I only watch I was like I watched the '84 movie with Kamala Falcon and Sting and this movie, and I, I don't really have that that far of a breadth of knowledge about the whole thing, but I I do have a little bit more knowledge now, and I appreciate that. So that's well, you're awesome. you're welcome. I'm, I'm I'm actually being very 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 quiet because like I said, the the prequel books are really interesting because they when I say they get in and they dive deep on on various things, especially the school books, um, it's interesting. Uh, I am available to answer any and all questions that you guys want to know about Dune. I will preference this. I'm going to try not to spoil, but I will answer questions about family relations and ties if you have any questions about the Atreides and the Harkonnens because I know that's going to be a big point because they they brought it up briefly but they didn't get into it and if no one has read the book or anything um there's one thing that I do have to spoil but it's not really a big big thing until the second half when you say second half you mean the second part of the part two of the movie yes 
Okay. That's not coming until like 2023. What can I can I say it now so I can explain a little bit about what you saw in the movie? No, not no. Okay. No, no, you, know, you cannot. You know, what I, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Oh, and no, on. you cannot. Better safe than sorry, Come on, watching the movie no, and cannot. knowing that particular fact makes all the no. sense in the world. No, no, <laughs> no, and no. But see, that's no. one of the things that I knew was going to be kind of difficult about discussing this, especially with book knowledge being out there. Because again, like I said, when I walked into the theater, I knew nothing about nothing about Dune, except that it's a popular science fiction property. I knew that the cast was amazing. And I was like, okay, this has got to be amazing because of the, just those two facts. So when I walked in, and that's one of the reasons why I don't want to go into such a deep dive about the books in this podcast, because we need to talk about the film the way it is. Like for you guys going in, you have a little bit of background about the families and about the conflict and what the story is about. For someone like me, which I know there's a lot of people out there who went to go see this movie but don't have that background knowledge, I had a different experience watching the film. Not to say it was a bad experience, but I feel like the way that they started the film off, they kind of like started in the middle of whatever this conflict is. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for me to catch up and try to figure out who was what what was going on and what the conflict was. Now, the other thing that really threw me off was I went to an early screening and because I got there a little bit late, I ended up sitting at the very front of the theater, which mm. no problem. I don't have a problem with that. The volume was so loud that there were times when there was dialogue, like when Jessica was uh, mumbling under her breath or when Paul was saying something or when they were talking and I was <laughs> and I've gotten so used to watching everything with closed captions for that very yep. reason because some people don't talk clearly when you know when they speak some people talk a little loud and it gets muffled depending on the volume so I was sitting there for the movie like I will say this I was very entranced by the movie I will say that the cinematography Again, the acting, Man. the relationships, I, I loved it, but it was hard for me to kind of understand. And I feel like when I walked out of the theater, I didn't have the reaction I expected mm. to have to the movie. And then when I came home and started to watch this a few days ago, because we were actually supposed to record a few days ago, and then I started not feeling well, but I watched it. I got about maybe a third through the movie with the closed captions, and I was like, this makes so much more sense now. So is it, it It really fucking sucks because now I'm 46 years old and I feel like I have to watch captions on everything. Look, <laughs> I started now. watching captions. What'd you say? I can't I, hear. What I, the hell is going on? Look, look, I blame Queen Sugar, okay? They mumbled the entire series. So that's the reason why I started closed captions three years ago. Gotcha. But I mumbled. feel like... I feel like when, when I first started watching it, like I said, they, they kind of start in the middle. You get the voiceover from Zendaya's character, whose name I still don't Chani. know at this point. Chani. Okay, Chani. Okay, because that's the other thing too. Because of the fact that I know that this is a property that has existed, I really went into it blind because 
I didn't want to read any spoilers. I didn't want to read anything about it. I wanted to experience it as, you know. I will say that having Chaney do the intro versus the 84 movie with the Princess Irulan made more sense because you got to see uh, Chaney's perspective right off the bat. I love how they spun this movie in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So for me, because I just watched the the 84 movie two weeks ago and there were certain things in there and I, that with this new movie I'm like oh thank god they didn't do that oh thank god they didn't oh I didn't have to watch that so I was like that but yeah no now Zendaya who I love is only in this movie for seven minutes yeah 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 which made people very pissed off that's the whole thing I feel like the trailer really I I, I feel like they were really dishonest about this whole movie mm-hmm. because when you see the trailer, you see the scene where he is like seeing into the future of him fighting and like bringing the knife across his chest and the visor going up. It's like you see that in the trailer. So you're like, oh, shit, they're going to do the whole movie just like they did back then. But then when you watch the movie, they show Dune and they put in the fine print part one. one. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? What do you mean part one? There was no part one in any of the no, prequels. No. I could be wrong but I don't remember them mentioning that this is going to be a two-part. Well, yeah, they did. Yeah, um, he, he said that when they told him he was going to do the movie, he said it was going to be two parts. Okay, I missed that. Yeah, and now they're saying it might be three parts. Real, three parts. Real quick, Hanako, have you seen the 1984 movie? Like I said, I came into this movie completely okay. having no knowledge of the Doom world whatsoever drink before you see it I, I just <laughs> oh my god it'll make the pain go easier i just wanted to say one a particular character dropped a line and i said oh my god Lori's gonna want to tell everyone what that means and i'm like no i can't i can't do it no no that no no no, no because that's why i was keen to know where they were going to end the movie so i know because if it's what i think you're talking about is not actually important in the long run. It's, so it could be spoiled, but it's one of those things that they're probably not going to ever mention. If this what I'm thinking They're about. not going to get to it, and that's in Chapter House anyway. <laughs> so no, they're not going yeah, to get so, to it. No. They're not, they're not, look, even if they do three a three-part movie, at best, they'll get a little bit of Dune Messiah. But they're not going to get to children. They're not going to get to God Emperor. So I don't think that... They gave us that a particular scene. We saw what happened on that scene. And I knew what was going to happen because what happened. But there is no way they're going to get this far with the Dune movies to actually go back and revisit that. Because if people find out what that actually meant, they're going to be pissed. Don't worry, Han. I have no idea what they're talking about either. So Okay. Good. Good. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. We're evenly killed on this particular episode because <laughs> yep. Mike and I are the ones that are not the book nerds and you guys are. So as, oh, Okay, as far as this book, yes, we're not those book nerds. So, yeah. yeah. I have no idea what they're talking about, so that's fine. It's cool. Because there are going to be people who, who listen to this show who probably know exactly what Anthony and Lori are referencing right now. Yeah. Then they're going to be people like us who are like, what the fuck are they talking about? And like, they're like, and they're, they're probably sitting there like, yes! Yes! Thank you. That's exactly what I was talking about. Yes, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And then the other half of us, they're like, "Okay, that's sure." All right. Well, I mean, I okay. Uh, God, 
I hate that. I'm sorry. I'm at the part where Foo for Hout does the whole Mentat thing. And I wish that they would have explained that he was a Mentat because it looks like an old black man having a fit. Okay. Just now, does. there's something <laughs> you can explain that's not a spoiler. Okay. okay. Yeah, because I was about to say, you just spoke Greek to me. So explain that. Okay, Foo for Howard is uh, a Mentat. A Mentat is a human being who's gone to uh, the Mentat school and has been trained to be a human computer. Let me go back two steps. 10,000 years ago during the Butarian Jihad, Serena Butler uh, was an uh, uh, icon because her son Mannion was killed by Erasmus, the AI. And the emperor and the king at the time what they they basically launched a jihad to get rid of the robots and the cymex anyway what happened is that her niece who's also named serena came up with this thing where the mind of man is holy meaning that they 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 threw off technology so basically nothing more sophisticated than an abacus if you were caught with a calculator they burnt down your house and they hung you if you were caught with a toaster same thing this went on for ten thousand years uh, Manfred Toronto and Anaz Idaho, yes, pregender of Duncan, they were the main leaders of this mind of the man is holy, no technology thing. So uh, Gilganus, who was this guy who was raised by Erasmus the Robot, founded a school called the Mentat School. And the school trained human beings as human computers where they're able to, with their mind and the aid of this juice called Sappho juice, which stains their mouth red, enhanced it so like a computer you ask a computer to write code and create a website they can do it mentally versus a okay computer. so okay so, okay, then, so what had happened i just nerded out what had, what had happened was men <laughs> had created with. ai and right. ai took over and enslaved yes. all of mankind yes yes humans revolted i mean overthrew the ai right and then, and the and then they created laws banning artificial intelligence. Right. So that's why right. you don't see computers. That's why you don't see. Right. That's why the navigators right. need the spice to navigate because right. they don't use AI. They don't use computers. See, anymore. that was a question I had watching this because for it to be so far into the future, I think the year was like 10,000 something, something, something. There were certain things that happened in the film that, of course, if you had computers, I don't think would have happened. Like right. being surprised, you know, the the whole ambush thing that right. happened where, right. you know, you go outside and you look up and there's like literally hundreds yeah. of ships. That's, right. that's why oh, yeah. everything, that's why everything is analog okay. because of the ban on artificial intelligence. Right. And that's why you have the right. mentats or the human computers. They can do all now, those now calculations the in their heads. They can store a lot of data and information in their data. memory. So if right. you were a person right. with an eidetic, eidetic memory, they just train you to be a, a, mm -hmm. um, a walking human a computer. Now there's two different types of Mentats. Uh, Foo for Howard is the regular type of Mentat. Pyre de Freeze, uh, the Baron's Mentat, he's what they call a twisted Mentat because he was actually uh, trained by the Benny Twaylocks, who we don't see. The Benny Twaylocks are basically uh, DNA cloning people, and they grow Mentats to be uh, insane. So basically, there's good Mentats and there's evil Mentats. So Peter DeFries is a is a twisted or a bad Mentat. 
Interesting. And that's why spice is so important to the right. navigators. Right. Because that's that's right. the right. only way they can navigate through space because they can't use computers to do the calculation. They can't use computers at all. Right. And it's even written into the Orange Catholic Bible, which we saw Gurney, which I'll get into later. But yeah, it, it, basically for 10,000 years, the most sophisticated technology you see is that plane that Duncan's riding in. Okay. Oh, look, okay. religion messing stuff up in the future. <laughs> Huh. No, it wasn't a religious command. It was a command was, for survival because human race was right. almost wiped out by AI. Yeah, because basically in the prequel books, AI basically genetically engineered a disease that wiped out most of the galaxy on purpose. So this is basically the way they that they fought the Terminators. So they went so yeah. that Skynet wouldn't happen. Okay. Pretty I'm, much, yes. Yeah. I'm following. Okay, much. Now I'm following. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like I said, if you want to know more about this whole Mentat thing, read the school book, Mentats of Doom, because that is really good because it really goes into Glorianus and 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 how Erasmus and whole different thing. But yeah, it's they had gel circuitry. Like I said, the prequel books are amazing. There, there are a lot of things so. that that you will see in modern day science fiction that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. arose out of Dune and its mythology. Mm-hmm. Skynet mm-hmm. possibly being mm-hmm. one of those things. The idea that Star Wars. Yeah, mm-hmm. that machines could take over and wipe out humankind. We see it over and over. Yeah, and the other little thing that bothered me, and and they should have gotten to it, but they didn't. They got to it a little, is the Benny Jesuit are they saying about you know with Jessica? The the Benny Jesuit uh in Sisterhood of Dune, they have forbidden computers they actually have computer banks that hold thousands of years of genetic records and they've managed to hide it from everyone all these years so all of that scheming and conniving to get the kids hot rock is because their dependence upon computer records and dna splicing and manipulation so in one fell swoop jessica screwed them because they said have a girl she had a boy so they don't show any of that stuff with the Benny jesuit I mean, they they, they, allude, they, they reference it a little. It. They allude, allude yeah, they the allude to it. Crossing of the bloodlines yeah. and all that stuff. Right, and the different things. Because okay, before they, we get too deep into that, we'll we'll get into that later because I did have questions about that. But um, going back to the movie, <laughs> going back to the movie. So basically, it starts out. There are it. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong. There are three major power players that we are shown in this film well maybe more if you count it but you have the emperor who we do not see in this film correct correct yes right okay so there's an emperor and then there are two houses there's house of trades and then there's house harkonnen yes. and these are rival houses and basically what's happening is this spice planet arrakis has been um i guess you Say harvested mind by House Harkonnen for Harkonnen. Harkonnen. Yeah. So um, House Harkonnen has been harvesting this planet for 80 years. And from what I gathered in the film, the emperor pulled them off the planet and then basically made House Atreides the stewards of this planet to go and do the same thing that House Harkonnen had been doing. But it appears that the emperor was doing that as like a trap to get rid of House Atreides because House Atreides is like this universally loved or respected house. And 
it was getting to the point where his house was starting to rival the power of the emperor and the emperor was jealous and wanted to get rid of him as a rival is am mm -hmm. i understanding you're that exactly question? right okay so at the beginning of the film basically what's happening is we start out with paul and he's having dreams of zendaya's character on arrakis and i'm guessing he's having these dreams because the plan has been put into motion that house atreides is going to arrakis to begin this stewardship and he's having these dreams about this girl. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know who she is. And then we see him and his mother together and they're having breakfast and she does this weird thing. I was looking at this so confused, like, huh? Because she's pouring him water and she sits it down and she says, make me give it to you. And I was like, what kind of weird, you know, again looking at this with no reference i was like what kind of weird shit am i about to watch it's like it's like a real sub real subversive snm thing going on here it's like what command me excuse me it was hold weird. on y'all related it was just really weird and then of course he's trying to use this voice to i guess the voice allows them to kind of control what a person does if it's used correctly and it they i guess Jessica is part of this Bene Gesserit and they have, I don't know if I want to call it magical powers. Is it, it, is it, it magic or is it's it? It's the power, but it's basically they're speaking to your subconscious. Okay. They can tap into your subconscious and manipulate you. Okay. To do things. It's basically a Jedi mind trick because George Lucas was heavily influenced by this when he was writing Star okay. Wars. He read the books and it influenced him to give powers to the Jedi. Okay. And it's, ba it's basically a Jedi mind trick. But it's like once you get in deeper and they talk about like his mother and like who she's with, it's just like, I mean, it, it literally gets crazy. And it's like, it almost gave me, once we get into it, I had to think about it. Like since I watched it, I was like, Paul's giving me like crazy Anakin vibes for a minute. Like. Like, I kind of looked at it and I was like, wait a minute. Hold the fuck up. What? That's fucking Anakin. Why, why, why is he acting like, why, why am I getting Anakin, like heavy, heavy Anakin vibes well, right well, there? Well, how about this? Much of Frank Herbert's inspiration for Dune was a Thorian tale. So oh. if you look at the story, you remember when we were watching Curse? And when we talked about Thorian legends and Merlin and all that stuff, right. if you look at yeah. it through that lens, a lot of the stuff becomes painfully clear. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You got a point there. So, and, and, and now that you guys say it, you know, I did think about, like, there were certain parallels that I drew when watching this and like I said because I couldn't really understand some of the stuff that was being said because the sound was too loud or it was being muffled or whatever I did kind of relate it to certain things like the whole Game of Thrones kind of comparisons and I did get a little bit of Anakin vibes Mike with Paul but not necessarily I didn't get it on the part where I was like okay he's gonna go dark side I don't know if he is or not in this story but I didn't get Right. that much but i kind of got the sense that he was um for lack of better words gifted in whatever it is that he's doing and then once i found out that the Bene Gesserit are only supposed to have uh, well they're supposed to have girls and that power right. is only supposed to go to the females 
and that she deliberately defied their rules and started training Paul in that way. I was like, okay, well, they're not supposed to only have girls. They're only supposed to have what they're told to have. Uh, oh, she oh, was right. told to have a girl and chose to have a boy. But is the power of the voice only supposed to be taught? It is only supposed to be taught to girls. And she taught it to Hmm. him and she wasn't supposed to. Okay. So not only was she not supposed to have a boy, she was also not given supposed to teach teach him him how to use power. Yeah, the weirding way. Yeah, yeah. See, basically Jessica screwed up all the way around. Basically, what happens is that the sisterhood has been planning this Kizrat Hadarot for years and years and years. And Jessica, because she loves the Duke, they're, the Bene Gesserit are able to control their body, their bodily functions. So she was able to conceive a boy versus a girl for her love of the Duke. That's in the book. That's in the Dune book. I won't go anything other. So when she has the boy, the Bene Jesuits are understandably pissed because the projectiva, the, the, the whole theory that they have around the Kizot Hadarat, basically what they they tell her is that she kind of screwed up their plans because the Kizot Hadarat isn't supposed to be uh, there yet. So when they were saying, is he the one, some people think he's already here. Basically, she skipped a few generations, generations to make him here sooner than later. Mm, okay. That's all I'm going to okay. say. Because that was the other, that was the question I had at the beginning when I said we'll get to it later on, because I was like, so the Duke later on in the movie, and of course, we're, we're going way out of order, but I think it's just kind of makes sense for the way that this conversation is going. But the Duke said something to her about, he either said, thank you for giving me a son, or he, he mentioned something about that. And then when the mother, I don't know what, what she's called. The Reverend Mother. Reverend Mother shows up. She said, you were specifically told to have a girl. I was confused. I was like, so what? Can they control like what they have? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. They can. Okay. They can. And since, since we're a little bit out of order, Yes, it is sort of messing with their plans, but Jessica is not operating in a vacuum because the Reverend Mother specifically says there are other prospects. Mm -hmm. So he isn't the only one out there. Yeah, there's a few and and there's and in the second half of the movie, we'll see something um, that to that effect. But basically, but this was a certain certain amount of circumstances Right. Um, they have, and, and it's like Neville and Herod. Right. You know, the prophecy applies to both of them. Right. You know, right. And, and this is sort of the similar situation, or that is a similar situation to here, where there are other people out there who sort of fit this, who may or may not fit the criteria for being the quiz that had it right. Right. Yeah, there, there's there's at least at any given time, there's at least three or four different alternatives because you have to understand something this important, they can't just leave their eggs all in one basket. No, you especially know. if there are people against it, they might try to go and assassinate, you know, the person that, I mean, Voldemort, you know? Yeah. yeah. Same thing, you know, he thought that Harry was the person who was going to be the one to defeat him, so he tried 
like hell every year to kill this kid. So yeah. yeah, so I can understand the need to have more than one. Now, here's another question I had. Did I hear correctly in the film that Paul had a vision that Jessica was pregnant? Yes. 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 Okay, so she was okay. So I did hear that correctly. Okay. So here's the other question. Does the fact that she was with the Duke have anything to do with Paul's, I guess, his bloodline or his genetics or his DNA that gives him that possibility of being, quote unquote, the one? Or was it something else? Because I'm wondering, does that mean that her daughter has it? No, he's the the he's the product of thousands of generations of crossbreeding and genetic manipulation. Right, okay. right. And for clarification, the Keysrod Hotterot is basically a male Benny Jesuit witch who can control everything that the witches can't do and can do. And he has something called presence where he can see the future and he can see the past at the same time. So the Benny Jesuit believe that if they could produce the Keysrod Hotterot, then they could basically take over the world faster than they have wanted to. So basically it's a power grab. So basically, hold on, Mike, close your ears. (laughs) So basically, he's Bran Stark with some control in Neo's body. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, Okay. makes so much sense. Okay, cool. And if we're going to be able to do this, like make all these pop culture references while trying to explain this show, that that will make it so much easier for me. Everything that you have watched or have been watching is influenced by this movie. 30, it was influenced by this book. Yes. No, the book. I'm sorry, the book. Yes, I, I need to yeah. say that. Yeah, it, it, okay. definitely the book. Okay. So the because the Bene Gesserit are basically Jedi. The, someone yes, had called Jedi. them bald female Jedi without without the lightsabers. <laughs> Look at it this way: like they only wanted women trained. Jedi only wanted younglings trained. They didn't want anyone trained past a certain age. So it's like right. I mean, right. they're I mean, they're parallel. I was surprised and like amazed by how much George Lucas took from this book it's like i think i heard before like from an interview he did or something from someone saying something like this is one of the things that heavily influenced star wars like as a whole like i mean you look at it's like they, they're dragonfly fighters or basically x-wing fighters and it's- yo let me tell you those dragonfly fighters when they started the ornithopters power- ornithopters they're called ornithopters Okay, whatever they're called, they are gorgeous. (laughs) Like when they started powering up, I was just, I literally was sitting at the screen looking like, oh, they were so, I mean, for, for, for them to have the kind of quote unquote technology that's not technology, right? They have some things in this world, you know? But I mean, it's still, but yeah, those. Ten thousand years into the future, so the, even though they don't have computers, they, they still have significant technology. You know, like the the personal shields. That is an incredible yeah. piece of technology they have too. Basically, the globe, the Holtzman shields—that's what they're called. Those were created ten thousand years before by a woman named Norma Sinva, and they basically haven't changed because the the way that the vibrations of the shields are is that it uses a uh, a folding space technology that isn't an AI technology. And it basically works off of vibrations, sort of like vibranium, like okay. Black Panther. Okay. So if you accidentally bump up against something that you're not supposed to, it can basically cause a mass explosion and kill everyone in the room 
building block. So they're very, very useful, but they're extremely dangerous at the same time. Okay, cool. So going back to the story, uh, we were talking about House Atreides being, I guess, uh, told that they have to go and be stewards to this this new planet, uh, Rackus. They're, they're going to go there, harvest this spice. And um, one thing I will say about this particular family, just looking at them um, later, uh, what is his name? Um, Duke Leto. 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 Okay, Duke Leto. Atreides and Lady Jessica and Paul. One thing about them that I think is different for me than sometimes what you see with other royal families and other uh, properties or entities, they actually do seem to genuinely love each other and care each other. And they are about protecting each other. A lot of affection. Yes, that's very evident. Not even just with them and the family. Everyone that they interact with, with Gurney, with Duncan Idaho, with um, the guy, uh, the guy who's on the who's already on Iraq is when Paul runs up and he hugs him. You get the sense that even though this is a royal family, they treat everyone the same. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of respect there. There's not so much that feeling of we're the ones in charge and you are beneath us, kind of like I got with the Baron. That's you know, why I the think... Atreides are so beloved by everyone. Right. You know, right. the, yeah. the Landsrad is, they mentioned it once or twice, twice. but yeah. they are the house, they're, they, they're basically all the ruling houses of the Galactic Empire. Right. And the ruling houses all look to the Atreides for leadership, and that's why the Harkonnens do yeah. not, and that's why the Emperor definitely, because at any point in time, the Landsrad could all of a sudden say, you know what? We don't like you being emperor. We want this guy over here later to be emperor. Ah, okay. So his it's not an absolute monarchy. He basically is like the CEO. He's like the head or the the overseer of the Landsrad. But the Landsrad is basically what runs everything. Yeah, but we didn't get to see how powerful they are in this movie because in the book they're they're powerful, but he still is an asshole, and he still refers to himself in the third person. Who? The Emperor. Oh, okay. But but see, Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho, you can find their, and Fufer Halleck, you can find all three of their backstories again in the prequel books, but basically all three of them have been with them since before Leto. But with a uh, little bit of Leto and a little bit of Paulus, the Duke, which we see the bullfighter, mm-hmm. his grandfather, yeah. they've been with them for years. And same thing with Dr. Yui. They've all been with him, them, the family for years and years. In fact, they raised both Gurney and Duncan okay. as children. Okay. So they have long standing. I mean, you know how you see families that have like really close friends, and they call them cousin, call them family. Mm-hmm. It's it's like that. They're really tight. It's very evident because even with the way that Paul and Duncan, like one of my favorite things about the film was Paul and Duncan's relationship. Just that very um, affectionate, very it was very brotherly, you know, and which is kind of, which you don't really see when it comes to ruling houses and their employees, their servants, whatever the case. I I didn't really get, I didn't get the vibe like Duncan was a servant 
you know, like he's mm. part of, he, he seems like part of the family. Same with Gurney. I mean, he, he seemed like an older brother, but even when he was being not necessarily rough with Paul, when they were training, he was being tough with him, but there was still like, you can see it on the screen. There's still some love and affection there and mutual respect, you know? And that was just something that was so different. Again, I, you know, thinking back to Game of Thrones and how the houses were and, you know, it was kind of sort of like um, the way that Daenerys interacted with like Masande and mm. Worm. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. Same sense of, yes, we serve her, but we don't serve her because she commands it. We serve her because we want to. Right. I kind of got that same vibe. And I can see the reason why the Duke would be so revered and so loved and so respected because even in the conversation he has with Paul, and, and that's, the, that's the one thing about it, you don't see a lot of interaction with him and Paul in this film, not as much as I would think. But even when you see it, when they're talking and Paul is telling him about his doubts, like, what if I don't want to be the leader? What if I don't want to be ruler? And he says one line so simple but so powerful, he says that you will still be the only thing I ever needed yeah. you to be, my son. I was like, yeah, that was that was a hell of a line. I mean, props to him for not forcing him into a future that he might not want. He was like, look, you can go your own way. You're still gonna be my son. I'm still gonna love you. You know, whichever way you choose. And I thought that was really important, as as opposed to people saying your destiny is to rule, your destiny is to lead, your destiny is to fight and overthrow. Da 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 or whatever, whatever is supposed to be overthrown. And he's right. like, well, what if I don't want to do that shit? It's like, it doesn't matter. That's your destiny. That's where you got to go. You got to do that shit. So get to doing. But the other question that I have in relation to that as well is I got the feeling that when they came to make the announcement and to sign the um, to sign the agreement, cementing that House of Atreides is going to Arrakis, is it just me or did the Duke pretty much figure out that it was a setup like he knew that this is what was going on and I don't know it's something about the way he carried himself and just kind of he, the unspoken conversations that he had when looking at Gurney or you know just the nods to Jessica or even to Paul it was kind of like okay we are preparing ourselves to go and do what we are duty bound to do but we're prepared that something might happen. I mean, I feel like that's one of the reasons he, why he sent Duncan ahead to make, you know, to, to try to make that um, connection with, with the, the Fremen. Fremen. Yeah, because I felt yeah. like he knew, okay, you know what? We're going to this planet with good intentions on our end, but some shit's about to pop off here and we need to all be prepared. I feel like he was he was very much aware of that, but at the same time, because of the type of person that he is, he is a person who has a lot of class. He's a person who has a lot of, I, I don't know, there's something about his character. I just feel like even though he knows he was being set up, he's still going to go and do what he said he was going to do. Like he is a man of his word. Well, he says, he says when, when, the House of Trades is called to serve. We answer the call. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I'm not I, I I'm not used to giving writers a lot of credit, but there's really <laughs> just one writer, Frank Herbert. <laughs> Frank Herbert did and and I wanted to say I was gonna save this for later, but shout out to Oscar Isaac because his oh. portrayal of of Leto Atreides is superb and, and how he phenom how he carried himself and and the little bit of of gestures and his facial actions you can tell yeah i know this is a setup yeah i know this is and then for a second he hesitates like do i really want to put my seal on this thing right and then he does it anyway because he knows that this Mm -hmm. is a setup he knows that he's he's his family's being sit there that's why i know i'm skipping around that's why he tells jessica later i thought we'd have more time Mm-hmm. He was on a timeline. He he, 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 knew. Want, he knew what he needed. Mm-hmm. He knew he needed to get the Freeman on his side. And he knew if he could do that, he would be able to battle whatever was coming. Right. He was just hoping that he had a little more time to get it set up. And that's what he told Jessica. I thought we'd have more time. But he knew. The, the events in the Duke of Caladan actually give way more background on, on his... Uh, whole trepidation, anticipation of what's going on. But in the back of his mind, I think that it's safe to say that the Duke knew that by Paul being 15 years old and given his own personal background history, that most of the Dukes in his family, once a kid gets to be of a certain age, they don't live too long given one reason or another. So he knew that he was going to die at some point. The other thing is the other variable in the situation was Jessica having a boy accelerated the Bene Gesserit timetable. Like they have all this stuff planned out and Jessica throws a cog in the system like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to make all this stuff happen now. They already got everything set up on Arrakis, but they had to, they had to make it happen now. And, you know, they're the ones that told the, the emperor to do this. The emperor was already on edge about the Atreides anyway. So that was an easy push. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was easy to make the deal with the Baron. Boom. Everything is set. Go. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, we got these other busters over here. We got waiting to try the same thing. And see, and here's the only nitpick that I have about the movie, and I know they're going to have to do it in the second half, but it should have been, and that was the whole thing with the Navigators, because both Chome and the Navigators had a hand in this shit too excuse my language and i think that if they would have just given us one scene with either the navigators or the emperor showing that they gave the uh, Gaius Mahayim the okay to to do some shady stuff i think it would have made a little bit more sense because it's not just the emperor it's it's chome it's the navigators no because for the purposes of this movie that's all we needed to know was the emperor's issue with your trade. I know, but I would. Yeah, you're, huh? you're, you're talking about things that no, that were not in the movie. So I'm that saying, was 94, the, 94. But right, I, I just per, said I wish. For the purposes of this movie. Right, but I'm just. Don't I, need, people who don't know what actually happens don't need that information right now. Okay, but I'm just saying, as someone who saw the 94 film, and I don't get it wrong, I think the movie is darn near perfect. I just think that it would have been better. My opinion is that if they would have given us at least a quick little scene with the Emperor and the Spacing Guild showing a little bit of how they threw over on the Harkonnen side, because I think that a little tiny bit of clarification 
because when you have the guy come in and he's doing the whole, you know, reading the, the proclamation and all that, it seems like it just, it came out of nowhere, especially when they say they've got the space and guilt and they have the land shroud with them as witnesses. I think that that needed to be a little tiny bit more explained. But see, I, I feel like because of the way that they started the film, kind of like in the middle of this whole conflict, I don't really think that that would have been necessary because if that was the case, then you have to start from the beginning and then kind of move forward. So for for me, I all I needed to know, I mean, the, the emperor is jealous. He wants to get rid of them. That's really the only explanation I need as far as this film goes. Now, once I start reading the books or once we get into part two, if part two doesn't explain all of that and it kind of seems like it doesn't make sense, then I might be like, okay, I feel like something's missing. But well, I, yeah, I, I, I think Hanukkah's on to something. I think that is stuff that they're reserved. There's a whole lot of things that have oh, been yeah, they're saving that held for the back second half. that save oh, yeah. the second half of the movie. Second. Oh, I know that. You know, Which characters, we, we don't see the emperor, we don't see Fade. All that stuff is going to be, yeah, yeah, we don't see any of that, right? Yeah, but I, I, I was just that's just my personal thing. Um, yeah, um, I need to talk about Duncan Idaho (laughs) because I got to talk about my boy Jason. And I know, Mike, you got something to say, ladies and gentlemen, Jason Jason Momoa playing Jason Momoa. Okay, is he's playing Aquaman, he's playing every other character that he's ever played in the movies. And this is not a complaint. This is not me bitching and saying, oh my God, he's playing the same thing. Because he was fucking great in this role. I mean, he. Uh, this is one thing that I really admire about Jason Momoa. He doesn't take a role where he's going to be out of pocket, where he's not going to be himself, where he can't like, you know, when he's he's acting, but he's not really acting. You know what I'm saying? It's like- It's very you know I mean? much like it's, it's just him. Yeah, it's basically him walking, him walking on set, be like, what am I gonna do? Okay, you're gonna fly the dragonfly over there and smack him smack him upside the head. Okay, cool. All right, let's roll. I mean, that's basically what he did. And he was great in this role. I mean, he got his own hallway fight scene, even though it was like a, a six-foot hallway, but I digress. Yeah, two. <laughs> okay, you know, the way that he was kicking ass. Okay, let me just Man. say this. The fights in this film like even even towards the end after after they got ambushed and everything that happened with gurney and you know them fighting i was just sitting there like wow i mean they were jason momoa's fight scenes in this film they they were so good but yeah i i agree with you mike when i was looking at it i mean everybody knows jason momoa if you even if you're not a jason momoa fan you know Jason Momoa. You know how he presents himself in the, you know, in public. You know basically what he stands for. You know the things that he supports, the things that he loves, and I feel like all of that was put into this film and into this character. And you got to see that version of him as another character, but it was still very much him. The fact that he was very comical. You know, he's always joking, always smiling, right. even though he is like tough character. You, I mean, you can see it in this film. He's supposed to be a tough character. He's the person who was training Paul in weapons until he went undercover. But also at the same time, just the way when he came back and he talked about his experience with the Fremen and how, right. um, you know, Paul picked up, he was like, 
you you like them or he was like I respect them you know they they take care of the planet they're about being one with it was I was like I'm just I'm watching Jason it's literally it was it was literally like I almost thought I was watching one of his Instagram posts where he was back in Hawaii talking about going up and like saying yeah these are my people I love these people like they're doing things the right way and da 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 and I was like this is basically, I mean, it's Jason Moore as Jason Moore, but it actually fit. It, I mean, it fit perfectly. It wasn't like it was like out of pocket. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It actually fit within the context of the film. And I really enjoy, I, I enjoyed his performance. And yes, and Anthony was right. Like he had two hallway scenes and they were both fucking phenomenal. And he is like literally one of the, like, I mean, his piloting skills were just like bar none. Like I was just like, dude. I mean, he. There's. I, mean, I, I was just gonna say, there's only one person who's who's almost as good at that as he is, and that's Josh Brolin, because Josh Brolin is pretty much Josh Brolin every time you see him. That's true. You are you are exactly <laughs> but, right, sir. Yes, sir. And they're both they, in the same movie. They they are. There's just a couple of things about Duncan Idaho. Like earlier, when later. We see the Harkonnens, you know, they use the Emperor's soldiers or whatever. And the Emperor's soldier says, yeah, but you, you have like three times as many soldiers as the Atreides. Right, but, they this got Duncan Idaho. Like, but they got Duncan Idaho and Gurney. <laughs> well, okay. Here, here, and, okay, I'm going to... Okay, and, and I'm, just one other thing. And you don't really understand what that means until, you know, after the ambush attack... Duncan Idaho walks over to the plane. He kills a couple of. He looks at the other three like, "What y'all gonna do?" And they ran. (laughs) Yes, they ran. They looked at him. They were like, "I don't want the smoke. I'm out." Okay, I'm gonna rain on your parades. I hated his portrayal because I don't think he did a good job playing Duncan Idaho because he didn't portray being a servant of Ganaz in the fight scenes the right way. He didn't have the sword. I thought he was too jokey. He was not serious enough, and he did not. Did not live up to what Duncan Idaho should be, and I'm actually not joking. Well, I, I will just—I know I was going to compare it to the previous movie, I, the I, 1984 I'm, I'm, film. He was I'm talking about the like, book, like 35 seconds. So, well, yeah, because in the book he was portrayal. dead within 10 seconds. I—I I thought he was just okay. Again, this is my this is my um, main nitpick with the movie is that they didn't let you know who these people were. You didn't know that he was a servant of Ganaz. You didn't know that that um, Fufer was a mentat. I wish they would have just said in passing because for a servant of Ganaz, he should have had Paulus's sword from the book. He should have had a better sword. His fighting in the hallway scene, that was good, but I felt that considering how famed swordmen are, of Ganaz, it should have been a much, much better fight. But scene. was that something that I think he did been mentioned in the film? Like, is that they didn't mention it at all? They like they, they didn't mention Mentats and they didn't mention Swordsmen of Ganaz. And in fact, I was reading a couple articles on the Nerdist and a few other places where they actually said Gurney was a swordman. I'm like, Gurney's not a swordman of Ganaz, Duncan is. So they got the facts wrong on at least three or four articles I've seen. So I, I like Jason Momoa. I thought he was decent in the film, but he didn't blow me away as Duncan Idaho. Well, he, he blew me away as Duncan Idaho because 
that stuff is not important to the portrayal of in this movie because that will require them to explain all this and why is, it's not important. You know, you see that he's a badass fighter. They tell you that the emperor's soldiers are like, basically the Harkonnens are scared of him. They're like, oh, they have Gurney and Duncan Idaho. So we need three battalions to help us out. Yeah. You know, and all the people trained by them are really good too. Yeah. That's the thing. You you don't need to know that he's a swordsman of, you, you just don't need to know that because you see it. And also about the Mentats, it seems, Denny, Denny, he's, he's more of a visual storyteller. Mm. He's not going to actually tell you anything before he shows it to you so he shows you the mentats he shows you what they're doing so subconsciously you already know that these guys are like human computers he they don't need to use the word mentat and explain what the mentat is he just shows it to you well I and the same thing with duncan idaho he shows you that he and gurney are really good and even paul paul says oh you're the master of arms yeah while duncan is gone i'm gonna be the master of arms again so they're telling you, he's showing you these things. He didn't have to tell it to you. Okay. Well, and having a, the sword is not that, it's not important. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me backtrack. My, my sister-in-law is 63 years old and she watched the movie and she said two things to me. She said, one, I enjoyed the movie a lot, but I didn't understand who the people in the movie were. Two, she said, if I would have known it would have been a part two, I would have waited until part two and watched the whole thing at once. So it's not just me nitpicking. I've had a few people tell me that while they enjoyed the movie, there was some uh, curiosity as to who these people were. So it's not just me. I've gotten this from a few people. I understand that. I mean, I said as much at the beginning of this recording, but again, Knowing that specific background information that you just mentioned about Duncan, I don't think that would have changed the way I thought about his portrayal in the film as far as how he related to the other characters. That's mm. what I'm paying attention to. Now, if I go back and read the books and I see and I get more detail, then it might be bothersome for me. But again, with the way that they started this film, they just kind of they dropped us in the middle of this conflict and then kind of explained things or showed us things here and there, it didn't really make that much of a difference for me as far as Duncan's character goes. I literally, from the moment he stepped on the screen, I knew everything I needed to know about his character. I knew that he had genuine affection for Paul. I knew that he was a trusted soldier in the Duke's army. And then even at the end, when, um, you know, when the Duke is murdered and Paul ends up basically ascending and he, he becomes the leader, immediately Duncan goes down on his knee and he was like, I'm here to serve you. I, you know, he makes it clear that he is a loyal soldier, that he, um, that he cares about these people. I mean, he literally, like, like Anthony said, he comes in and he sees everything going on around him. Like literally their whole planet just got ambushed. Everybody is pretty much dead. He still fought off the enemy, stole one of the um, copters and went to go find Paul and Jessica not having any idea if they were alive or not. He just knew the Duke was dead. He needed to go find Paul. That's all I need to know about his character in this film. You know what I'm saying? So okay. 
the the other background stuff it might become important later maybe in part two or i will say if they had given this movie maybe another 20 or 30 minutes they could have put it in there and it would have been important but for the way things played out in the film for me as a person who doesn't have that background knowledge I learned everything I needed to know about his character just watching him him and Gurney. I mean, just like what, what Anthony said, you got 3,000 soldiers, but they're scared of these two dudes. That tells me everything I need to know about them. I mean, that's facts. I mean, you know, I mean, and Josh Brolin was good, but he's no Sir Patrick Stewart. But, you know, I digress. Yeah, and see, and see that, and that, that I thought was very interesting because somebody floated that Patrick Stewart now that he's older, would make an excellent emperor in part two. And I thought, oh, that'd be kind of funny. But I, I yeah. thought that Josh... Because he Gurney in the movie. Because yeah. he played Gurney in the movie, yeah. You just yeah. want to see Josh Brolin with the pug. That's all that was. Okay, so explain the pug. <laughs> bones or no bones? I've been seeing people like... that. The mean, Okay, first of all, the memes have been crazy. Like, everybody's going nuts over Duncan Idaho's name. And, and then you, you've got Duncan Idaho, you've got this, you've got that, you've got this, and then you got Paul and Jessica. So I've been seeing those memes all week. But then I've been seeing the memes with the pug. Like, people have been photoshopping pugs in the Dune memes. I'm like, okay, so somebody explain. Lori, explain to me what the pug is. No, that requires a spoiler. I, no, actually, I was going to say is I have an idea, but other than the actual meaning of the meme, I don't have a clue. I All I know is I just that, know that there was not a pug in this movie, and apparently there should have been. There, there should have been, a, well, at least a chair dog. Well, the movie ended before we would have seen the ah, pug. Okay. Right. And we thought we got a chair dog, but it was a face dancer instead. But the thing is that the one of the things that Dennis said, Hey, I want to see a chair dog, okay? That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, so my thing is, is that with Gurney, they said that, and Dennis, I can't pronounce Vinny. the guy's last name. Vinny. Villeneuve. He said ahead, and I'm glad he said it because I would have been pissed. They did not have an opportunity to, Gurney carries around a guitar called a ballast set, and he's known for singing because he says, Gurney, give us a song. And one of the things that they had is they didn't have time to film him singing a song with the ballast set so they told us it was going to be cut from the movie so i knew that going in so instead of the ballast set he was running around with this copy of the orange catholic bible okay. instead okay. so okay but again i okay i'll give you guys all the points that you said and i will probably not pronounce the names right for the rest of the evening but my thing is is that at least at the very least when he was fighting in the hall I would have preferred him to have a better sword than those two short swords. He should have had one long, she should have had the, the Duke's, uh, Paulus's sword at the very least. I mean, if you would have given me that, I probably would have backed off a third of my comments I said earlier. See, you, uh, you, you buried the lead. Because they gave You buried him, the lead because huh? Hanako did get a chance to ask, why are they using swords and not laser guns? Like, oh. She Sorry. didn't even ask that question. They're walking around, they have these personal yes. shields, they're using swords. Well, this is the future. Where are the laser guns? Well, they don't have regular guns back. with bullets. No, only swords. No, all the swords made from worms' teeth. But no, the reason why they, they don't have projectiles 
is the host windshields, like I said earlier, are very, very sensitive. So if they would have had a laser or they had the lasers when they were on the attack, but because of the, how sensitive the worms are and how charged the air is, if they would have shot a gun in the open desert, they all would have been dead because it would have exploded because the host windshields... Well, no one in the Empire uses projectile weapons. It's not just, it's, it's nowhere right. because of the shields. They block anything fast It's moving. too dangerous. That's why using yeah, the swords is very important. And mm-hmm. Gurney and right. Duncan are extremely adept at knowing that sweet spot, the actual speed at which you need to mm-hmm. use your sword to penetrate right. the shield. And that's how they trained right. all their soldiers. That's why the Harkonnens right. have such yeah. a hard time. That's what the Sudakar, the Emperor soldiers, are also good at knowing that that speed that you need to to have your sword. So okay. no one in the Empire uses projectiles, and it's not just not nobody, just on no, Arrakis; right. it's everywhere. They, nobody, they use it for ship nobody. to ship combat, co- combat, right. surface right. to air, right. air to surface. But right. personal fighting right. is all swords. They don't have a. They haven't had guns in about ten thousand years. Because literally. of the personal but shields, and that's why. Because of yeah, the that's why when you shield. see yeah. um, the well, you talk about it. Yeah, the aerial you, you, with, yeah, the, with the lasers. Yeah, but we did get to see the Sardaukar, and we got to see Salusa Secundus. That was my favorite moment. Because they threw that in there. I was like, oh, we're going to see Seleucus Okay, Secundus. explain that because I have no idea what you're talking about. Seleucus Secundus used to be the capital. Okay. And because of stuff that happened, it was destroyed. And then later on, they rehabbed it. And that's where the soldiers uh, train okay. and live on. That's where the, the, the is emperor's from. soldiers. Okay. The, the Imperium's okay. yes. soldiers. The Imperium soldiers, yes. And Leah Kynes' father, Pierre Kynes, is actually grew up on Seleucus Secundus. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about this Bene Gesserit. <laughs> Fear of mind here. Let the fear go through me, over and around me. <laughs> First of all, Jessica in this scene, just the way, again, oh, one of the things I love about this movie is seeing everybody act even without the words like her facial expressions her body language the way that she showed that she was scared or fearful or just the shape it was just watching her I was like I don't need to hear her say a word at all to know everything she is feeling throughout the entirety of this film the acting in in this film is just phenomenal. I love every just when she has to take Paul before the Reverend Mother from the moment she goes in and sees him sleeping and she's like having to calm herself down because she's about to do this thing, which again, I was confused. I was like, are you about to kill? I, I mean, I literally thought she was about to kill her child. I was like, are you about to kill him? And then, you know, she goes to get his clothes and she puts it down. She was like, get dressed and come with me. And it's like, this is literally immediately afterwards. And she's so ridiculously calm. And I was like, wasn't you just shaking in your boots like two minutes ago? Just her performance is just so intense. I think that's the best way to put it in this film. She's so fucking intense the whole movie even in her times of calm 
you could just, I, at least for me, I could just feel like not power in the sense of like the Duncans or the Gurneys or even the Duke. She had a quiet power about her. Like, I don't know, there was just something so powerful about this woman. And then to see her turn into complete mush around the Bene Gesserit, it was just like, I need to know more about this, about this group. Like, what the fuck are they? Who are they? Because I literally thought she was going to shake herself to death. Well, first of all, Gaius Mohayim is her uh, mentor. Okay. And Gaius Mohayim is very, very high on the, the hierarchy of the Bene Jesuits. She's like the number two reverend mother. She also has other things that I can't get into because Anthony will tell me to shut up. Let's just say that Jessica has good reason to be very, very, very frightened because Gaius Mahayam is not one to play or suffer fools. But when Gaius Mahayam tests Paul to be human, and that's what she was doing with the Gamjabar, uh, she was doing that to make a point to Jessica because you have to understand, they're not mad that Jessica had a boy. They're mm-hmm. pissed she had a boy. I mean, we're talking pissed, yeah. okay? And it takes everything that they have. They really thought they were going to kill him. Oh, okay. They tried to kill Paul a few times, okay. anyway, um, in the past. But anyway, let's just say that because of whose Jessica's parentage is, and because Paul is her son, the Benny Jesuit have a very, very vested interest in him not being a Kizrat Hadarat, she's afraid of her because her entire life, Gaius has basically controlled everything about what she said and done. So when she has Paul, that's such a big betrayal because of the whole 10,000 year old program that Gaius basically had to tell the Bene Jesuit that if she found anything wrong with Paul, she would not only kill Paul, she would kill Jessica. The way she was so nervous with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And while Paul was being tested, she was outside the door and she was like falling to pieces. And she's doing the litany of fear prayer. Yes. And I was just like, what is the, like, it was just so, I don't know, the vibe of that whole scene was so weird, but also the way that the Reverend Mother kind of, it's like she held Paul in disdain but at the same time she seemed a little more interested in him than I would have thought she needed to be so it was right. just, I don't know it was just a very weird vibe there well you you have to understand they have a very strong interest in producing not only producing but producing and controlling the kids on Hadarat because given their history uh and this is something that I've never really fully understood I understand the witches are powerful. I understand they got the weirding way and they, they use the voice and all this other stuff. But they've never really fully explained why they really want to have a male Benny Jesuit witch other than the fact that they want him to control. The, you understand, these women sit in corners in palaces and great houses. They whisper uh, things into the ruler's ears. They are truth sayers for the emperor. Mm-hmm. They basically... If you're a a royal person and you're not married and you're male and you don't have a wife or a girlfriend, they will show up on your door and say, hi, this is Amanda. Amanda likes you. We're going to give Amanda as your concubine and you can't turn it down. 
Okay. So that, if you do, they will fuck. Okay. You. So that's the other question I had because kind of closer towards the end, when Paul has the vision and he tells his mother that you know he had a vision, he knows she's pregnant, and she goes to talk to the Duke and they have this conversation. Mm -hmm. I noticed there was one part. Um, I think this was after the attack when they had Jessica and Paul in the helicopter. One of the soldiers mentioned something about her being a concubine. Mm -hmm. And I remember the last thing he said to her before all of this popped off was, I should have married you. And I was like, when he said that, I was like, wait, what? They referred to her also, also as his wife, which was wrong. Basically, he didn't marry Jessica for political reasons because he always held on to being head of a ducal house. It's better to marry for political power. Therefore, his heir is legitimate, but he did not marry her for political reasons. Okay. So basically, say the next planet over had a princess that they wanted him to marry, he would marry her instead of Jessica, even though he and Jessica have been together for like 20 years. And he seemed to love her. He does. Okay. He loves her very much. Okay. Which is why when she finds out she's pregnant, that was that one was unplanned. She that just happened. Okay. Now remember, you have to remember, Jessica at the time of the of the movie should be around 36 years old. Okay. So she came to Caladan when she was very, very young. Um, I think she was 16, 17, and I can't get into because I've been prohibited by Anthony to give more background of what happened. But let's just say it took them a minute to like each other, but when they did, uh, she, she's basically has never left his side except for a few instances. Um, yeah, the, the, they basically make them take these women as their concubines and as their wives. Uh, Juana, uh, Dr. Yui's wife, she's a Benny Jesuit. Oh, uh, okay. Basically, any wife that isn't of royal blood that's in the royal houses, more than likely they're Benny Jesuit. Okay. Basically, basically they're a big old... Uh, Mark called it a big old brothel of prostitution ring. <laughs> he basically, they basically stroll the girls out and go, you like what you see? Here you go. No, it's it's how they manipulate the genetic pool to get to exactly, get exactly. Okay, so the other question I have: Who sent the little um the little thing in to try to kill Paul? The Harkonnens had put someone in the wall to be Remember an assassin. The scene, the okay. Right. I remember the scene, but again, because the volume in the theater was so loud, there were some parts that I missed. So when I was watching it, I was like, okay, I missed something. And I, I haven't gotten that far in my rewatch. So, okay. That scene was actually reworked and cut because what was supposed to happen, and I guess they're going to do all of it in the back half, Count Fennering's wife leaves a message for Jessica telling her that someone is going to try to use a drone to kill Paul, but she doesn't trust it because it's Count Fennerin's wife who gave her the message. Oh, okay. But, okay. but yeah, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't have worked. But the way they did it here is, you know, the Harkonnens sabotaged a lot of the equipment, and they cemented mm -hmm. someone in the, in the wall before they left whose job was to try to kill mm -hmm. Paul with the okay. Hunter's Which secret. Which is why shut up. Hunter Singer, which is why Shadok Mapes was there, and that's why she made herself a housekeeper. Okay, because that was the other thing I was going to ask about the woman that she selected, because it's like, if you're interviewing for a job and you have a weapon, I would think that it, you know, and again, maybe I didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on with these two women, but it's like, 
the woman came in and she had that um she had that knife, the the knife the saber yeah the crystal knife okay ba yeah basically what happened is that for at least 5000 years the Benny Jesuit have sent uh, Benny Jesuit to Arrakis and have embedded them with the Fremen sprouting this thing called the Protecta program where they preach of a Messiah. Therefore, they have protected themselves so that the Messiah does show up on Arrakis. They can claim ownership and have the Fremen trust them so they won't kill them outright. So they've laid the seed work for a Messiah and for what they call their Asayadina, which is a female Benny Jesuit who's a Fremen. But that's later on. Okay. Remember, she says we've laid the groundwork for you on Arrakis. Right. That's what they mean by that. All right. So going back to the, um, I guess this was a test for Paul. Yeah. That damn thing that she had him stick his hand in, and you know he was going through excruciating pain. What was that? Is that like a, that was a test, right? Basically, what it is is that the Benny Jesuits are very uh, superficial and they're snobs. And they believe that the only people who are humane enough to live are women. So they don't think that men are human. They think men are animals. So that test, what in the box was to prove if he can overcome his male animalistic nature and rise above and have a higher consciousness. So putting his hand in the box, which simulated pain and fire, if he would have drawn his hand out, jumped out or anything other that would have proved that he wasn't quote unquote human therefore she would have killed him because he's not Kizrat Hadarat material oh okay and the Gamjabar was just for them having fun and shit yep. and giggles and, and she would have used the Gamjabar and they've used the Gamjabar in the past in the books but basically the only time you see real prominence is in Dune itself this movie this book okay um, let's see, where do we want to go next? Anthony, pick something that we haven't talked about yet. Mind you, we're still in Arrakis right now. All right. <laughs> um, I guess we could talk about Yue, about the doctor. Go ahead, how to go. I know you have some things. How we do it, what we do it, Shawty. Yue! I'm just, you know, something didn't sit right with me about him. When she brought Paul to him and he was checking for his vitals and just, I don't know, something was off about him. I just felt like I don't trust him. And I mean, it wasn't anything that was, um, I didn't feel like he was going to betray them in the sense like, oh, I'm a spy, you know, I'm fighting for my enemies in that sense. Um, what ended up happening with him with um, the Harkonnens having his wife hostage and basically saying, okay, you do this for us. We will reunite you with your wife. He does end up betraying them, but it was one of those things where it felt like it was something he didn't want to do. I felt like he had genuine affection for Paul and for the family. And he was only doing this because he had no other choice. Now, I don't know if he actually, like, if anything would have been able to be done if he said, hey, the Harkonnens have my wife. Can you guys help me get her out? This is what they wanted me to do in, in exchange for her. Like, we see that type of behavior in other things where it's like, okay, I'm supposed to be doing this, but I'm going to try to get help. And usually it doesn't work out well. And it probably would not have in this case, because as we see, when he 
finally goes to claim his prize, the Baron is like, yeah, I said you would be reunited with her. So be reunited with her. I already knew that was coming. Like, dude, she's already dead. You're about to die. Because the Baron doesn't seem to me like the type of person who negotiates and holds up his part of the bargain. But I I don't know. Again, the way that UA was, I was just like, yeah, something's not right. He, well, first of all, Dr. Yui, Dr. Wellington Yui is a Sook doctor. Let me give some background. Mohana Sook uh, is the founder of the, um, the Sook School of Medicine, and he started the school during the plague that happened 10,000 years ago. Uh, fast forward to the house books, which is about 5,000 years uh, in the future uh, midpoint, and you've got uh, this lady who's in charge of the Sook doctors. And because the school is bankrupt, she basically does all these unethical practices and she gets in a lot of trouble. So what the emperor has, he has these special conditionings for suit doctors and it's called the suit medical conditioning where they are basically uh, trained in such a way that they cannot hurt or harm any patients and they have a metal band that their hair is in a ponytail that they hold and that metal band is supposed to show that they've undergone suit training. Harkonnen in the book broke the Dr. Yui Sook training. That's why he was able to get Dr. Yui on his side. In the movie here, they don't show any of that because his hair is cut short because I was looking for the Sook thing. Basically, Wana is the love of Dr. Yui's life. They got to Dr. Yui uh, in the current book trilogy that, uh, that we're reading now that can't, that's coming out now in Duke of Caladan. Basically, the Benny Jesuits have sent his wife to live on a different planet away from him so she only contacts him maybe two or three times a year but he's deeply in love with her so the Harkonnen said we're going to kidnap her we're going to threaten her and so they forced him to work with him now if he would have said to Leto they've got my wife they would have helped him but Dr. Yui because he's very very prideful and he considers it the private matter decides he's going to work with the Harkonnens and he's going to try very hard to uh, take care of him. But see, the other problem is, is that Dr. Yui was one of the first people to diagnose exactly what had happened to the Baron with the disease. And he tells him, I can't cure you. So killing him was part of payback because he couldn't fix them. having the worst STD known to mankind. So there was a lot more than him just, con- just capturing Wana. He was out to get Dr. Yui. He was always going to kill him. Hmm. But yeah, um, kind of saw what was going to happen to him coming. But basically what he does he drugs the family right he gives them, yes. i guess this is it's supposed to be a, a sedative to help them sleep yeah right and yeah but he gives them sleeping pills instead yeah and paul takes it jessica takes it but the duke doesn't take it and right. that's why he's able to you know when he hears something going on he wakes up and he's like okay what's going on and I think maybe if he had been able to raise his soldiers a little bit earlier, then maybe they would have had more of a fighting chance as far as the ambush goes. But of course, he gets attacked by the doctor. And, you know, it's one of those things because, again, I'm looking at everybody's facial expressions and the way that they are with their body language in this film. And when the Duke is kind of, I don't think he's paralyzed, he's actually injured and he's you know the doctor pulls him over to the wall and he can't really move because he's been stabbed in the back right 
That's correct. Yeah. He was stabbed in the back. And when he sees that it's the yeah. doctor who has betrayed them, the look on his face, I was just like, yeah, that doctor needs to die a very, very horrible yeah. death. Like, like Laurie said, they didn't explain it very well in the movie, but he's not supposed to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. He's been he's he's being conditioned right. to not be able to do that. So yeah. But I mean, you could see that betrayal on the Duke's face, like, what the f- what the fuck you know but um that let me tell you that whole sequence from the time that the duke wakes up to the attack and seeing gurney and all of the other soldiers go out and fight and i mean they are giving it their all and it doesn't matter that there are ships attacking them, there are lasers coming down on them, everything's exploding, all of their aircraft has been destroyed. They are literally fighting there till the end. And I'm sitting in the movie theater with my hands on my head, like, are y'all about to kill every like I, I felt like I I don't know. I felt like I don't even I can't even think of what movie it it was just one of those it felt like a desperate dire situation that the house of trades was in it, i mean literally the whole fucking house got wiped out yeah. but i was still thinking in the back of my mind had it not been for the three battalions of the emperor soldiers that somehow the atreides soldiers would have beaten back oh, i believe i agree i i agree because it's like when yeah. they're on the steps and the, that those handful of atreides yeah. soldiers they were slaughtering yeah. those were. soldiers yeah, they were I, I mean I and they didn't have on armor right and i was really sitting here like feeling hopeful i was like oh this is why y'all motherfuckers were scared but i mean i'm sitting here i'm doing this silently because literally my whole theater was like nobody talking nothing it was silent so i'm doing this like i just want to like oh my god yeah blah, blah, blah. and then you start to see them be surrounded from the back and i was just like okay they're about to be captured no they wiped those mother they wiped them all out i'm just sitting there like who who's left because i didn't think anybody was left and then of course we see duncan he comes back he you know, whoops some ass. He realizes what happens. He steals one of the um, copters and he goes to look for them. But I'm just sitting there looking at all the devastation and um, the doctor lady, the Fremen lady, the, um, what was she? Shut up, mate. Oh, oh, late times, yes. When she comes in the next day and she sees what happens, I was like, I want to cry too because everything was destroyed. And all I could think was, the Duke knew this was going to happen. You know, again, going back to when they were on their home world and all of this pomp and ceremony was going on, I really felt like he knew that that was what was going to happen to them. But like you said, Anthony, he said, I thought we would have more time. You thought they'd have more time. Which, which brings into a theory. Yes, I have a theory. So, just theory. is that they always have have alluded to that uh, Leto had prescience and that he had it and that his father, Paulus, had prescience. That's why it's so strong in in Paul is that it came from his father's side, not his mother's side Mm -hmm. of seeing the future or having a sense of the future. 
Okay. Again, that's that's that thousands of years of yep. genetic manipulation yep. by yeah. the Benin Jesuit sisters. But you have to admit, though, it is fascinating. It is really fascinating because by by the time you get down to Paul, it's either going to work or it's not. It's it's either going to go one way or another. And after ten thousand years of genetic manipulation, it's basically a toss of the dice. All that work just to hope that you got it right. Yeah, well, it's, it's like the sister said. Well, I guess we'll just, the Reverend Mother. We'll just have to see how this plays out. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, the the other thing we didn't get to talk about already was we got to meet our first Fremen. Um, Stilgar. Yeah. He come. He yeah. He was the contact that Duncan had made. <laughs> with and that whole scene was hilarious. I was about to say, let me tell you, when that dude walked in with all that attitude and the fact that the Duke was still very cordial, he was very calm, and I was like, this is why he's the leader. Because mm-hmm. anybody else, I mean, even Paul was getting ready to be like, yo, dude, <laughs> you know, with his little scrappy self, but that you know, and, um, and Gurney, I don't like him. Oh, you were talking about memes earlier because, <laughs> how you know, someone was like, Oh, I know why he doesn't like him, and they put up a picture of the two of them in No Country for Old Men. Oh, jeez, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. He's like, There's oh, it's, 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 it's like, I don't like him. Well, here's the reason, and it shows <laughs> in No Country for Old Men. It was hilarious. Well, all, all I'm going to say is I watched this. I've watched this twice now. Uh, I'm watching it again now as we're talking about it. And, and we see that scene. And Mark knows very little. He knows some about Dune because I rant and rave all the time about Dune. And he says to me, he goes with the whole you know sharing of water. And he goes, well, of course that makes sense. He goes, of course you're going to be all upset. And then I tell him, I said, there's a scene you're going to want to avoid later. And he says, why? And I look at him like a coffee service. And when we got to that point, he was like, I hate you. I did not even see that. Wait, what? What did I? The coffee service. The coffee service. I was told never ever to show that to him again. That was just, Um, and I quote, nasty. But that was a great introduction of. It was. The Freeman. Yes, it was. You learn everything you need to know about them. One, they, they, they don't have time for bullshit. (laughs) They don't have. They don't want what you have, because they have everything they need. They, they want to be left alone. Yep. And they want you to leave their planet the fuck alone. Mm-hmm. Get what you need and leave. So, so in other words, they're they're a seven year old black woman. <laughs> hey, I plan to be one. I'm just saying. But even at the beginning of the movie, when we're getting Zendaya's voiceover and she's talking about how they invaded the planet and how they fight them off the way that they were just coming up out of the sand mm-hmm. and ambushing mm-hmm. them, I was like, where the fuck, the, where were they hiding? Like, insane. just so seamless. I was like, oh yeah, I, I see why he sent Duncan to go like, yeah, let, let's form an alliance because those are not people you want to fuck with. Basically, they're the Tusken Raiders. Th- 
even when Thurfer said that, you know, the Harkonnen said there was only 50,000 of them. No, it's millions of them on the mm-hmm. planet. Yeah, it, they basically, it, it's uh, Piet Kynes, Leah Kynes' father, basically is the de facto planetologist versus the ecologist. Basically, he's the unofficial leader along with Stilgar, the Fremen, and he makes it his mission over the last 20 something years because they changed it a little bit because in the book he actually is there longer he anyway but uh and uh leah kynes is actually a native he's actually the leader of the fremen along with stilgar and what they've done is that they have the and they piss me off it's not it's a c it's called a ch not the way they pronounce it in the movie those are basically like you have in the middle east those desert uh cave dwellings with the carvings with like the temples and stuff mm-hmm. there are hundreds and thousands of chs all over arrakis and there's the mountains and all that and basically what they've done is that they've terraformed it to such a point underground if the harkonnens had bothered to look there's underground jungles and forests there on dune there's a river underneath there that is circumventing the sandworms, okay? okay There's was, that, that's what shit. I was about to ask. Like, how is all of that there with those big fucking ass sandworms? It's underground. Because when that thing came up out the ground mm-hmm. and opened his mouth, you have to remember, I'm watching this movie <laughs> in the third row. <laughs> this film was done for IMAX. Oh, so oh, oh. So that worm was really coming out at you, huh? Oh, my goodness. I was like, no, I'm not fucking with y'all. No. <laughs> but yeah, so basically they have a whole thing where they're growing, they have whole trees because there's a, there's a part in the book where they go to the underground and Leah Kynes is there and they're talking and he reaches and there's an orange tree and he hands it the Duke, uh, they hand him an orange, a full-size orange. So hmm. they have it, but see, the Harkonnens, okay, backstory. The Fremen, who become the Fremen, are a group of Muslim Arabic slaves who escaped in a fold ship from another planet and crash landed on Arrakis. And over the centuries, they have intermarried with the local people, and now how that's how they became freemen or fremen because they were no longer slaves so that's the basis of the fremen okay Okay. so they are actually islamic buddhists is what they are so they have a combination of being buddhists and and um muslims at the same time and they come from this planet that they're slaves and they crash land and they're one of their ancestors figures out how to do the whole thing with the worms and stuff they intermarry with the local people and they become the basis of freemen and they become freemen and they are literally millions of them. And they all come from this one tribe of slaves that crash landed on Arrakis like 8,000 years ago. So okay. that's where a lot of the, the Islamic imagery comes from uh, and the uh, Arrakis city and Arrakis and all that. So basically what happened is that they chose to hide because they will trade with people they will work in the uh, spice markets and they'll work on the the harvesters and stuff but for the main uh part of them they like to keep themselves uh separate and quiet because if the harkonnens or the emperor knew that instead of fifty-five thousand fremen there was actually close to six seven million they would lose their shit because guess what they could overtake them they let them take the spice because they know it's better for them to take the spice and act like they don't know what they're doing than to let them know their true strength because they would basically go through and they would kill everyone on the planet. 
see, I was think I was like, man, if they could have held off, if that attack could have came just a little bit later, given Atreides a little bit more time to form his alliance, they would have been good. But oh, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Oh, I have to mention this. So when um, what's his name? The I, I don't remember his name, the Fremen that ends up coming in with Duncan when he gets there and they do this whole exchange of the spit mm-hmm. and that was, I was just like, y'all could have found another one. But you got to realize that that spit is moisture and moisture is a very rare commodity on the planet. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, think about it. Their, their suits recycle every bit of moisture that comes out of their body. Mm-hmm. one. So it's like, I mean, they're giving up some like something that could possibly be crucial in them surviving to let you know that yeah. they're, I mean, it's, yeah, it's gross. I mean, it's like, I'm glad he wasn't, um, I'm glad he wasn't one of the three wise men because they, they were brought gold, frankincense, and spit, but that's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> that was good, right? Well, that, that we good. didn't see it. <laughs> That was I like that one. I like that. But they didn't, but they also didn't show one of my favorite things from Children of Dune is when they when you die, they put you in the cistern that takes all the water out of your body. Yeah, yeah I don't need to see that. Oh, it's disgusting, but it's awesome mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, but see, here here's here's the problem that they had with this is because they had this thing that drove me nuts the entire movie. Two things. One, it seemed to me, and Mark says I'm imagining things, it seems to me that every time Jessica was talking to Paul about his destiny and everyone that he would meet would whisper under their voice, he should know our ways before he's why he was born here. I know who you are. Did it not seem to you that the Duke had no clue they were all saying this in front of him? But he, they were all what? Just like he was oblivious. I mean... Oblivious. Oh. That they were all saying this and the Duke just didn't get it or understand because like when Lyatt says he'll know our ways as if he was born here, which is part of the book, he acted like he didn't hear it. Or when Stilgar says something like he's been here before, nobody calls it Ooh, out. But he, they, they both say it in a different language, though. Yeah, but still, I mean, they may, they, well, I was watching, okay, they, I was watching closed caption, so I did probably get yeah, that. Yeah, they, they were speaking in another language, so they didn't understand what you were saying. And they, the either one thing, of them. I think the other thing, too, is that if you think about it, like, right before everything went down, when Jessica goes to the Duke and she's like, there's something I need to tell you, and he was like, I don't want to know. I think he was probably purposefully ignoring right. some of yeah. those signs yeah. because, again, I think maybe, one, he already knew that they were in danger, and I think he was focused on doing what he needed to do to make sure that planet was taken care of and to make sure his alliance with the Fremen was handled so that that would give them a little bit of a safety net, I guess, in the case that they were attacked. Two, I have a feeling that if he knew or suspected what might be the deal with Paul, because if I'm not mistaken, the only time I saw Paul use the voice, it was always around Jessica. It was never right, around him. Right, right, yeah. So I feel like the Duke might have known that's Well, he says as much. Paul, he he kind of says as much with, to Jessica. He's like, I, I kind of know what's going on, what you was going on with Paul, but you know what? <laughs> I just need to know where y'all gonna protect them. Oh, yeah. She's like, yeah, I'll protect them. She's like, no, 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 no. 
is the Benny yes, Jesser yes, going to protect yes. him? And notice she so didn't answer. He knows. He just he just is like, I'm going to stay away from that stuff because that doesn't deal with me. And like Conical said, I can only focus on what I got right here. So I think he had an idea, especially when, what's her name? Kenneth? Kenneth. Kenneth. Kindness, yeah. Especially when Kindness was showing them how to wear the suits. And she's yeah. like, have you worn this up before? He was like, no. She was like, so someone talked to you? This kind of made sense to me. And then, like you said, she said the thing about him knowing our ways. I really think he was just kind of like, okay, you know what? This is not... That was some Jedi mind trick stuff. Right, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I think if he were to know exactly what this so-called prophecy is and the fact that his son might be part of I don't think he would have been able to be focused on what he needed to do for everyone because I think his focus would have been on protecting his son. Okay, that makes sense. And I know that that's something that he wants to do, but for someone in his position, he has to think bigger picture. Right. Okay. Okay. If Paul really is the savior that they believe is going to come, he's going to be protected. You know what I'm saying? The Bene Gesserit are going to protect him. His mother will protect him. But, well, yeah. Nobody's going to protect these other people. That's my responsibility. Right. And and see, and see again, because something I cannot say because I've been forbidden by my podcast mate, because of something that had happened in the past, I think that if he had full, full knowledge of it, because of what happened in the past, uh, I think he would have taken Paul and he would have taken Paul so far away from anything Benny Jesuit that Paul would be underground. The other thing that got me now, I haven't tracked it down when they were talking sign language and they were saying that it was the Atreides sign language. Well, there's also the Benny Jesuit sign language that they have. So both sides have their own version of sign language. And I couldn't tell was it Atreides or mm-hmm. Benny Jesuit? I think it was the Atreides because uh, the Benny Jesuit sign language, there is a dedicated system and they used it in the miniseries and it didn't look like that. So I think that was the Atreides one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, because it, it, it's it's like they had so many different ways of speaking. Right, right. <laughs> like, like, like Jessica would literally be in a conversation with Dr. Yue and she spoke to him and then she did the sign language. And then I think there was something. He spoke something. to her. He spoke back to Paul and Mandarin. Yes. Yes. yes, yes, yes yeah. I was like, wait, what? Like, how did. Okay. I mean, I'm all for being multilingual, but it just seemed like with it being in such close confines, like you have three people who are in the same mm-hmm, room mm-hmm. speaking languages in three different ways. I was like, no, I wouldn't trust nobody. No. It was very confusing. And like I said, when they first started doing the sign language, I was like, well, which one is this? Right? Because they have different ones. And I, and I finally, like I said, I figured out it was a trades. I think it is. Because like when she's telling him to use voice, right? And she's like, you know, your voice needs to be this pitch and everything like that. Because like I said, Mark was watching it with me the second time. He knows a little bit about Dune. He's like, well, don't, don't you have to have voice in a certain timber to get stuff done? I was like, yeah. He goes, well, you know, when she tells him your pitch was off, he goes, how did the voice work? And I told him, well, I think that's because he's, you know, the kids are on Hot Rock. You know, he was going to have it either way. But yeah, I agree with Hanukkah. There was way too many different 
language is going on sometimes. Yeah, but I mean, as far as his pitch, I mean, maybe do you think that his they were saying his pitch was off because they were used to women doing it and not men? I think his pitch was off because he's 15. Oh yeah, he has hasn't gone through the voice change, like right, exactly. Yeah. Bring me the water. Pretty much. Right. Like she said, you're you're not quite ready. Yeah, yet. he's 15. Yeah. I mean, let you know, because remember in the movie when the stuff happens, he's a little bit older. Right. So, but uh, yeah, but could they not feed that kid? I swear to God, when they took his shirt off at the beginning and they were showing him getting out of bed, and I'm going, okay, they didn't feed that child. That child needs some food. I mean, we're talking ribs. I can count the ribs. I, I think that's all it's set up. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet is just skinny, period. So it's yeah. like, you know, he just doesn't have... I'm not the, body shaming or anything, but I'm just saying the kid was skinny. I think it's a set up for later yeah. if they introduce Faid because... <laughs> I, I think I I think I delicately referred to it the other night when I was half drunk as Sting and his tidy whities. Yeah, we're talking about the I mean, Sting's character from the other movie, which we weren't supposed yes. to talk about. But yeah, they yeah, didn't just, they didn't yeah. introduce him in this movie, but he's supposed to be right. like the opposite of everything that Paul is. Yeah, Fayette Raffet. Yeah, so he will be. Okay. He's going to be. You know buff and cut and all that good stuff not huge like um dave batista yeah not huge like the beast yeah Yeah. so i wonder if they're going to use like harry styles to play him maybe you know that's actually been brought up (laughs) just saying they made a meme with harry styles they put him side by side next to sting and saying that he would be a good fan okay can we just say that I know they changed Leah Kynes to male to female from white to black, but that actress rocked it as Leah Kynes. I loved everything she did. I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. I mean, she really did a good job. And, and I love the fact that when Duncan confronted her, she's like, I can't say, because she knew all along what was going to happen. She was part of the, being the planetologist. She was prohibited from saying, hey, yeah, you might not want to take that sleeping pill, but she was prohibited from doing it, but I love the actress. And now that death scene that she had, they altered that from the book and the other movie because she's supposed to have like a conversation with her her dead father, but I, I still like the way that they did it. And that classic scene where she says, I'm a Fremen and she goes outside and she has the hooks for the sandworm and then the guy stabs her in the back. I was like, no! Because I want to see her ride a damn worm. <laughs> so, I, but see that okay. So I want the worm <laughs> because at the very, very end of the movie, mm-hmm. you actually do like Paul. I guess is having one of his. I don't know if he's having a vision or if this is something he's actually seeing. There is somebody riding a worm. No, was that he was not her? Seeing someone? No. Here. He was seeing seeing something, yeah. Because they because what had happened is when 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 Duncan comes back from the desert and he has this thing, it's actually a thumper, but he calls it something else, and it's actually a thumper. What happened is they figured out that rhythmically pounding on the sand in a drum-like fashion calls the sandworm forth. That's how the Fremen get the sandworms. They got these little hooks, they grab the hooks, they hook it onto the skin, they climb up, and then they ride the worms, right? So when she sets the thumper, you see her pounding in the sand. Right. She's saying this is all because of Shihalut, which is the Fremen word for the sandworm, Shihalut. They basically follow the cult of Shihalut. They live and die by the sandworm, right? 
and everything about their culture is evolved because at the beginning, after they crash landed, this kid got thrown out of the village for stealing. He goes to that ecology station is where it all began, which was awesome to see. He figures out how to call a worm. He figures out, his name was Selene. Selene figures out how to create the hooks. He figures out the name of Charlotte. He figures out how to create a still suit. It all started there at the eco station with Celine. Celine, the worm writer's way it was called. So when they bring that back to this movie and she's pounding and we see the hooks, I got goosebumps. I just did. I just showed how much of a bookworm I was. Sorry, nerd. Sorry. <laughs> it was awesome. Okay. I love this movie and it's, it's Dune. So I was all happy, but yeah, the whole thing with worm sign, the whole thing with the Duke, you know, now I will say this. Uh, my eyes did not need to see Foo for Howard with that umbrella because I just thought it was hysterical. I was like, seriously? My man, my man got sick skin. That's, that's all it was. You don't want to burn. Okay, so quick question. Lori, did you say you had a, you had one of your like complaints about the movie was about his character? Uh, I had a complaint about his character because they didn't mention that he was a mentat. The other problem I had is that when you're a mentat, your eyes don't roll up in the back of your head like that and turn white. Basically what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to take a little vial of sappho juice, supposed to drink it, close their eyes, and then give the mentat the mentation is oh, what they're okay. supposed to do. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe that, this maybe is why that I have no children. This is why. Yeah, maybe those things that they change from book to screen because visually right. it works better. But so. the, the 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 teeny tiny umbrella just had me cracking up because he's a he's a very popular character actor, and mm -hmm. he uh, I just watched him the other day in Wu Tang. Uh, he plays one of the uncles of, of Riza, but he's in everything. Right. So when I saw him in the movie, I was like, yes, he's going to be Foover. But that umbrella just had me cracking up. I mean, first of all, it wasn't big enough. <laughs> Second, it was a little dainty. So just just seeing him. It's not an umbrella, it's a, a parasol. Well, a parasol, but still, it was, it, was, it was both cute and horrifying at the same time. I was like, okay, whatever. Mark saw it. Mark had to leave. You got to so protect hard. your anyway. skin in that oh. sun. I mean, that sun on the rackets is brutal. Well, terrible 140 right. degrees is what they said yeah 140 degrees they said it was going to be but uh that whole spice uh mining uh scene of the, the spice hauler and saving of the people and the stuff that was beautifully done i i think everything about that was really well done i loved it um that's one of the better parts of the book and the movie because it shows that the duke really does care yeah and that mm -hmm. he's willing to get his hands dirty and he's willing to actually be among the people and i think that that helped the other side that we're not talking about you've got the fremen but then you've got all the other hundreds of thousands of people who live in Arrakis city who live in the surrounding areas who actually work on these spice mines who had to work for the harkins who by the way had no union i'm just saying that out loud there was no union with the harkins at all the no other cool thing about that is earlier you learned that he wanted to be a pilot and you got to see him. Yes. Of course he wanted to go see the spice fields because they gave him a chance to fly the ship. Right. I was like, right. okay, come right. on, Paul right. Dameron. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I and I, I I thought that too, but it was it it brought back Flying X Wing on Tatooine again. Yeah. It brought back 
you know, because he, because the, the scene where Paul says, well, grandfather, you know, uh, was a bullfighting and they were like, well, look what happened to him. But see, this is what I love because when they pack up the house, you see the portrait of the old Duke. This is what he's called, Paulus, in his bullfighting costume. Okay. And you see the bull. And they said that I believe one of the things is that his blood, because he got gored by the bull and died. And the, the old Duke, Leia's father, uh, Paulus. And Paulus, actually, he was murdered by his wife. She poisoned the bull and the bull gored him anyway. Uh, that's neither here nor there. But I, I love the say, fact that- That sounds was, real familiar. Game of Thrones. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm just saying. She sounds poisoned familiar, the bull, the bull, po- the bull gored him. He's dead, Leo's Duke. He was 15 too. But anyway- <laughs> their track record again is not good for living long once you become duke i'm just saying okay so they they don't live long but uh but i was really happy to see that i was like oh they got the old duke yay i which they didn't have in the first movie which i thought was kind of cool but getting back to the whole scene with the ornithopters and the spice hauler um even the visual when they're coming in and they're showing the the whole city Arrakis city that was pretty much shot by shot from the 2003 Children Are Doing miniseries, The Ziggurats, and the way that they had the building. So I like that they kept that because I thought that was interesting. Um, even the armor looks better. Uh, and the whole thing is, is that I think that visually they did a much better job with these scenes because in the old movie, it was a little choppy. But in this, like, like Mark said, it's more dramatic it's more less jokey it's more streamlined and if you've never seen dune before you can really get into it because it's like oh this isn't star wars this isn't star trek but it's space opery it's fantasy it's sci-fi but at the same time it's got a little a lot of mysticism so it's like huh i might just sit down and watch this you know so i think as far as that's concerned they did a really good job i thought the cinematography was was outstanding and Listen. Denny Villeneuve has like this this visual thing with his cinematography. Everything yeah. is beautifully shot. Everything is beautifully framed. It was just the movie was gorgeous. Yeah, oh yeah, gorgeous, it's beautiful. Yeah. And the sandworms, I don't mind that they changed them a little bit. But that scene where Paul is there and he and his mother are there. And by the way, I have a nitpick about how they were walking because they were walking wrong, but it's a different story. When the sandworm is above him in that iconic scene, and he doesn't realize that he's holding the sandworm at bay just because he is the Kizrat Hadarat, and that wasn't just pure luck, it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Because the sandworm was like here, he was like, like right there. It was like, oh. And, and the thing about Denny Villeneuve is he said that he read Dune when he was 15 or or when he was a teenager and he was like it was one of the most influential books in his life and he had said in an interview that he was he was concerned for a minute about you know people there's so many diehard fans but he knew that the hardest fan on on him would be himself (laughs) which is why I think he took great care in how this movie was done it was gorgeous. The cinematography in the desert made it look interesting. Like, damn, like the way they filmed the spice blowing in the wind and shit. It was yeah. like, mm-hmm. man. You've, you've never seen Lawrence of Arabia, have you? Man, I only got four hours for Marvel movies. Don't be giving me that shit. I'm not trying to be all like that. 
actually yeah. I actually haven't seen it in like twenty some years. So, but yeah. that's on Beyond Zebra. It, it, it felt it felt like that. I mean, the cinematography in that is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah, but I mean, it's like I just I felt like, especially like the scene that Laura's just talking about them flying into the city, like that was mm-hmm. just like crazy, and like the the sub the subtlety of the hum of the orintha choppers orintha copters yeah like like, mm-hmm. the, like they weren't like like just like black hawks or like they didn't have like right. big like jet rocket boosters and shit it's like you know all you heard was like the thrum of the wings and i was just like okay like all the technical stuff that they're doing on here was great my thing about this movie and I hate to say it, was that there was so much dead space. Mm. There was a lot of dead space. Like, like mm. where they weren't talking or they were walking or they were just standing or like sitting or doing stuff. Like, there were, like, moments where there was nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. there were some moments where they were probably, like, giving you a chance to think of what just happened or just to give you a breath or something like that. But there were just a lot of moments where there was nothing and it just comes just like what are we doing here okay that's the only thing that kept me from giving it like an a it's just like i wanted not necessarily exposition but i mean just like something there like if they would have put the banquet scene in mike i think you would have felt different but they cut the banquet scene out yeah and that scene basically explained everything about the dead space that you're talking about and it explained more about why they got there, how they got there, what Leah Kynes was actually doing there, and about the Harkonnens. And if they had that in there, that dead space, especially the parts where Leto is there by himself, it seemed like they're just no talking, they're just walking, walking, it would have filled it in. But it was eight minutes long, and they said it was too long to put it in the movie. Even the part where Paul and his mother were in the desert. And yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like. Yeah. That's you know, I have I have PTSD for Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows, them walking through. Where they were in the tree. What I thought about too. I was <sighs> like, Wait a minute. I understand that you're supposed to. It's it's supposed to give us a feeling of danger for them because they're walking in this desert where these huge ass sand snakes are, and I also understand it's supposed to be about isolation because this is after they've gone into hiding. Duncan has found them. They've gone into hiding with the Fremen, but they're found. This is where Duncan has his scene, and unfortunately, he dies. But Paul and his mother, they escape. They crash land because they have to maneuver through a sandstorm. And it's, you know, now I'm sitting here thinking about there's still so much we haven't even talked about with this film yet. It's just, it's it's a lot. But yeah, I would say that them going through the desert and then coming up against the Fremen. I enjoyed that part because you kind of sort of got to see Paul come into his own because he has to defend himself against one of the Fremen. But also you get to see that Jessica ain't no slouch either now. The dude was like, okay, yeah, we'll we'll kill her. And die. she was like, oh, what we not gonna do... <laughs> Oh, he's like, oh, you didn't tell me you was a Benedictine. I didn't know that. Or a weirding woman. You didn't tell me any of that. Wait, what did she say? <laughs> he was going to kick my ass. That's what, what 
That's yeah. what she didn't tell him. What did she say? Oh, the conversation was short. <laughs> now, did anybody catch on Solicitor Secundus when the starter car were there that they were basically bathing them in rivers of blood? I was just about to ask yes. about that because I just passed that part. That's where I'm at, yeah. So... Yeah, they're they're bathing them in rivers of blood, and in the background you can see the blood coming. The bodies. Yeah, so I was like, who 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 are they draining blood from? Those are slaves and prisoners that it's are also on, a prison uh, okay. planet. Yes, yeah. it's a prison planet. Yeah, those are prisoners and, and slaves. Basically, the ones that get screwed up—that's their punishment—is they get to be drained and they get to be bathed in the blood to lead to the power and glory of the Sardaukar warriors. Okay. There's a whole backstory on yeah, that. We don't have time because like I just said, we've been talking now for almost three hours. There's still parts of the movie we haven't even touched yet. We haven't talked about Leto's tooth replacement. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we haven't talked about Paul's visions not necessarily being, being jibing and being correct. Yeah. Exact, but they are informative, <laughs> but not necessarily exactly how it's Plays out. I haven't mentioned the Duke's half naked death scene. <laughs> they took the man's clothing. How low can you go? I mean, come on. I wasn't No, Hanukkah was like, Hanukkah was telling me, oh, when I went by her office, oh, I'm always down for a half naked Oscar. I, was- I mean, <laughs> I wasn't complaining. <laughs> See, I was worried because in, in the 94 movie, the Duke has a special moment with two young boys and then he kills them off screen but you kind of see it on screen so when i saw the duke was naked i got worried about the duke's virtue yeah we don't need to see the older duke with no young boys no mm-mm, i didn't need to see that well i'm glad they didn't do it but i was like because he was naked i'm like oh I, he's your cousin i'm like well, wait a minute that may not matter to the duke okay no, thank you i'm so glad we did not see any uh pedophilia in in the movie that just would have thrown it for me well, I watched it two weeks ago and I'm sitting there going, oh yeah, I forgot about that part. That was me the entire movie two weeks ago. Oh yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we haven't got to the the tooth. The tooth thing was fun. That was fun because to me of book and movie, to me that seems like they, they did a better job this time. But to me, that seems like the biggest cop out, uh, uh, the biggest out for the Duke, because to me, it was like, really? You're going to go through all of this and you're going to try to take old boy out with poison too. Well, it's not like he had a choice. I mean, he was paralyzed, he was mortally injured, yeah, and he's naked. So it's not like he has a weapon on him anywhere. He really didn't have much choice. (laughs) Just see the Baron wasn't stupid. He turned on his personal shield. Before he went over to him. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you, you. Worst breath ever. Oh, yeah. Like, but he, he literally, he literally cleared a room with that shit. I was like, damn. And then when they came in and saw the Baron like huddled up on the ceiling in a corner, like a damn spider, I was like, it was like oh, an overgrown shit. baby mort. Yeah. Cause Peter Devines, he died. He knows he was on the floor. He died. Anthony, he got that reference. You got that reference. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get that. Sorry. Baby Moore is what we call the Horcrux version of Voldemort that Harry saw in King. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Baby. Yeah. 
right yeah oh okay i remember that yeah so okay. that, that's literally what the baron reminded me of being up down the ceiling i was like oh okay he's like a grown naked oh yeah okay but the the baron was no way as hideous as he was in the first movie oh really yeah, he, he oh he's got warts and all in the first movie oh, okay. so we won't get into what happens with those but let's just say he had a much better even though he was grotesquely overweight not body shaming just stating a fact uh he, he got upgraded he got yeah. upgraded a lot because mm-hmm. I mean, he's was, a star he's a star scarred you know they weren't gonna mess him mess right him up. exactly like, he's a star scarred yeah it's, it's in the stars guard like like contract where they're like okay you can kind of make us ugly but not that ugly because you know we have to, i have a swedish reputation to uphold because even gustav in uh vikings they didn't make him hideous in vikings either so but uh yeah but they did a really good job with that because that was one of the bigger complaints is how disgusting the baron actually physically looked in the 94 movie and it turned a lot of people off uh i thought that david batista as beast roban was perfect I loved him. He wasn't he wasn't in the movie that long either. No, he wasn't. He was maybe what five minutes of even that. Because that's gonna come later in the second half. Like I said, the the problem is is that I said originally they could have added a half hour, but now that I think about it, they needed another 45 minutes to an hour to properly do everything that they need to do, but they did pick a decent stopping point. At the movie, because that's what I was so curious. Because listeners may not know when Hanako got out of the movie, I was texting. I was like, "So where are they stopping at? Where are they stopping?" Even walked out the theater yet. (laughs) She was on. And she was like, "How's the movie? Where was stopping port?" I'm like, "Y'all, like literally, the screen just went blank." (laughs) She's like, "Well, I'm waiting." Well, I was curious because I mean, uh, when they said it was going to be a two part, my first thought was, "Really." How? How? I mean, they extended certain things to make the movie longer, but to me, I'm like, Duncan's on screen for 30 seconds, he dies. Da 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 da. You have this happen. Then I was like, okay. So when they ended it, where they ended it, I'm like, okay, because they're going to have to do certain things, which I'm not going to talk about, in order to get certain things done, which I'm not going to talk about. So I can see that. But I was curious. So, and again, I'm sorry you were still in the movie. Well, it was just funny to me because I was like, wow, she is like, like, I was sitting there like, was she looking at her watch? Like, okay, she said the movie started at 730. Is this what, okay. She 100% was. Actually, I did time you. I actually did time you. I was like, okay, she should be getting out right about now. <laughs> I actually, because I was so curious. Yeah, because, because you know, we didn't have just, any previews. Like, literally, they really they shut the lights down at 7 30 they turned them right back on they said cell phones off now if you get a tap on your shoulder (laughs) so of course we're in atlanta they made a joke they said if you get a tap on your shoulder just do like the atlanta falcons rise up and leave (laughs) so we were like oh okay so yeah lights went down Oh, started, no okay. previews immediately started in the movie and it was I mean literally I got out at 10 o'clock so now I will say this I would not have been mad if they had made this a longer movie yeah yeah because they only like I said maybe they, they they're they're two-thirds of the way done basically right. because I said that okay you got this you got this 
and maybe throw this in and then you should be done, yeah. right? But considering what they kept out of the first part, yeah, I can see that they can make it a longer movie because, well, the Emperor stuff alone, you know, should give you some, some time. But the, the part that dragged for me, and by the way, the way that they were walking, yeah, they could have done a better job with that. Um, what dragged out for me is once they were, you know, they got off the, the copter and they were buried in the sand and all this other stuff. And they have the dream with Jessica with Alia and she's there and all that stuff. And then they get to Jameis and they get to Stilgar and they get to Chaney giving this bullshit speech. It's better you die by his hand. It's a good way for the desert. I'm sitting there going, really? Really? You're gonna... I, it, they drug that out. I mean, she was shit talking, literally. And I'm like, oh, God. And Jameis, I love the actor, but Jameis, they should have said, Jameis is co-leader with Stilgar of the Fremen. And the reason why Jameis is like that way is that because of the relationship that he has with the tribes, they're very, very leery of anyone, including the Harkonnens, and that he was going to go after Paul no matter what. But they didn't go into any of that stuff. So, well, well, I mean, uh, to me, it dragged. And that part just dragged because at that point, I was like, can we please end the movie now? I'm tired. Yeah, the third act like, mm-hmm. was, was yeah. pretty stretched out. I mean, I know why, but mm-hmm. it was pretty stretched out. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess because they kind of had to, and again, I don't know where the story goes after this, but I guess where they stopped story-wise, I felt like was a good stopping point yeah. because the only insane. other option, only other option was to stop after the attack and they got away. And but that would have been too early for story purposes. Mm-hmm. They could have ended it right when Leah Kynes was killed. I think that would have been a good between those two points. And just show them walking off in the desert. Nah, that would have pissed me off. That would yeah, that would have pissed so that, off too. That would have pissed me off. At least the way that they ended it, they found the Fremen. They're walking off with the Fremen. And now, you know, he's made his contact with tell me Zendaya's character again. Shani or Chaney. Chaney, Chaney. So he, he's made his contact with Chaney, and at least that gave us somewhat of closure you know well because if if he would have gone this whole movie and not connected with her i would have been really pissed like okay yeah zendaya's in the movie only for seven minutes i know that she's going to be in the next part of the film but if they would have ended this without them at least meeting i would have been mad yeah, but you have to you have to understand that when they did this movie, they they had the ghost of the 1984 movie because Cheney in 1984 was played by Sean Young. Remember the actress Sean Young? She played Cheney, and to me, she did a really good job as Cheney. Um, the actress that they had in the miniseries did a really good job playing Cheney too, and I think that. They save most of Zendaya's stuff for the next movie, but she has a much bigger part in the first part that they just basically cut out. Yeah, but it, again, it probably, because of the way that they're doing the film and the fact that they split it, maybe they're moving all of that to the second. I think they are. Yeah, I think they are. reasons. Because yeah. Think about it. If they had done most of it in this film and then we have to wait two more years to get right. the film. Right, right. 
Uh, yeah, I I really don't have a complaint about the fact that whatever it is, her her importance in the film, they're putting it all in the second part. I, I don't have a problem with that. Because, I mean, mm. we do know there are going to be some very big scenes because like you said, Mike, the way that they cut the trailers, some of the scenes that we saw in the trailers, we didn't see in this part of the film. We're not getting it until the second part of the film. So I'm cool with the way that they did it. You know, for me, it's more anticipation and it gives me a moment to get closure from this part of the film and to mourn the characters that we lost in this because we lost pretty much most of the main cast from this film is gone. At mm -hmm. least from our or from the good side of things you know you've got the duke who's dead you've got uh is i, I believe gurney is dead duncan which we never know. saw gurney die so we don't know this is true and i thought that too but i'm like do you see how destroyed that place we was? never see I, gurney die yeah you're right duncan he did die and he came back because he was dead and that, you think he, you I think, think he came back because remember Jessica said he's gone next thing you know oh boy popped up again he was dead because I wondered about no. that because I was like he was dead he died but maybe he just no died. he was dead he came back I was like he pulled a whole coat mm -hmm. and like get up mm -hmm. that second yeah no he was he came back he wasn't dead he was on his knees he got punched in the face and knocked down okay he, See, he, I took it that he died. He was he was stabbed, and then the leader walked in. They looked at him. He punched him in the face, and he fell over to the side. See, that's what I thought too. I was like, okay, did he die? And then when he got up well, the second I, time, so I was he, like, oh. he wasn't dead. He was just knocked down, and he gathered himself and got up. Okay, well, I'm gonna have to watch that again because I could have sworn because right after that, Jessica said he's gone, and I thought I took that as saying that he died. But you may be right. You know, I'm going to go back and watch that because it, it happened so fast that it, in truth, it could go either way. Bad. I was but like, you, you, I was like, am I about yeah. to have, am, am I about to have to watch him die? Oh, I'm about to have to watch him die. Well, they actually, he does die in the substation, but he actually dies outside, not inside on the book versus the movie. But they did, because it was Jace Momoa, give him more screen time. Because in the original book and in the movie, he's on scene for all of 30 seconds. Okay. I mean, he, he literally killed. It's sort of like in True Blood where Lafayette dies on page one of book two. Right. That's pretty much uh, Duncan right. Idaho. Okay, well, great job because I didn't oh. mind seeing him for as long as we saw him on the screen. We could have got more. But like I said, because I, I really enjoyed, you know, of course, I'm a huge Jason Momoa fan. Everybody knows that. But aside from that, the relationship that he had with Paul in this film, just the few times we saw them together, their interactions, that was like one of my favorite parts of the film. Mark, Mark threw shade. Mark said, and I quote, you know, without the beard, he's not aging well, is he? You know what? <laughs> he said it, not me. And I'm looking at him like, you know, I'm not going to say one way or another about that. I'm just going to get That man is gorgeous with or without beard, but I do prefer the beard. Just like with Isaac in this film. I was like, okay, the beer game in this film is it's tight. Him, Huey's got a good one. It, yeah, it just it worked for me. Duncan could have had a beard; I wouldn't have been mad. But okay. well, you know, yeah, it's overrated. Yeah. Oh, 
That beer's overrated. Mm. Speaking as someone who can't grow one, but I digress. I I I like. But see, and then the other thing is, and I love the costuming on this. I I love the soundtrack. I love you know Jan Hammer. I love everything about it. But like I said, I had a few nitpicks, and my main one was that they didn't say who the people's I guess occupation, mentat, whatever you know, were. That bothered me. But the thing is, is that when Harkonnen says, cousin, you set a fine table, I was like, okay, they kind of need to give a little bit more on that. Um, they drawed out that last third, uh, the, the thing with Cheney. But all in all, as a book reader and as someone who has literally multiple copies on DVD, digital, Blu-ray, have seen Dune, basically I listened to the Dune books, at least all of the books, meaning all the series, I literally listen to them at least once a year. Uh, and I and like I can say we're in the middle of the latest, latest trilogy. Um, I'm so familiar with Dune that it's at this point, it's just something I just do on like almost a daily basis. I was completely in love with this film. I, I thought that they could have done a, a tiny hiccup on certain things, but I'm completely happy. Mark even liked it. Mark's not a big Dune fan. When you watched it and you were like, oh, it's perfect. I was like, okay, I'm going to take your word for it because I know how big of a fan you are of the books. Mm -hmm. Like literally, I remember, I think I remember even back when we first met, you mentioning Dune. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, we've known each other for what, almost 11, 12 years now, something like that. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're forgetting, forgetting they showed Mohadeep, the little mouse. They showed Mohadeep. Oh, okay. So is the mouse a character in the book too? No, the mouse's name is Mohadeep. The mouse is uh, a name that Paul will use later on. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like if you look in the, the 80s movie, it's the word that he is like, I guess when they say their name, they derive their power or like, and it's like, mm-hmm. and that's how they shoot. Like when they're going to war, he's like Mohadeep and it like throws a power bolt out and it like, and it, and that's how when they're going to war with whoever they're going to go to war with. Ah, okay. So okay. he takes the name Mohadeep. I am the bigger mouse. <laughs> so Mickey Mouse. And the, the name that Anthony has, uh, was it Liam Agaib? They don't really use that too much in the 1984 movie. In fact, I had forgotten about that until they showed I don't think they use it at all. They don't use it at all. Yeah, they use it in the book, but they don't use it in the 1984 movie. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because they kind of glossed over that. Because in 1984, again, this movie is heavily influenced by Islamic uh, rituals and stuff. They were afraid that it was going to seem too uh, one-sided. So they toned down a lot of the Islamic elements of it. So, yeah. Uh, Did we forget anything? (laughs) Uh, I want to give a shout out to to what's his name, David, uh, whatever his name is. He's Polka Dot Man. As soon as David Dalmash. Yeah. He played Peter DeFries in this movie. Yes, he did an excellent job as Peter as the Mentat. I was looking at job. him like when I watched the film with him and um, the Baron, I couldn't figure out who they were. Like I knew who they were in my mind. And I just couldn't, like, I'm looking at them like, I know those faces. I know those faces. And it wasn't until I saw the credits and I was like, oh, oh. But yeah, the casting in this film was like. The casting was fire. 
they they did an excellent excellent job uh they, they really did I, I love this i'm sorry they're in a little hazmat suit they see the, the baron on the roof I, I love the little hazmat suits uh, <laughs> i think it's just funny um they, they did they the casting was amazing in this thing i mean they they did such a good job they, like i said if i've only got tiny nitpicks jessica should have had red hair that's a nitpick um they should have gave their titles and who they were that's a nitpick i think they jason momoa's character should have had the duke sword other than that those are really my three nitpicks really and truly and those are minor hmm. <laughs> anthony what about you final thoughts um final thoughts i thought the movie was excellent like everyone else that 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 last third kind of drug out a little bit but um Otherwise, I, I thought it was really good. I, I like the fact that he stayed as faithful to the book as he possibly could. I appreciate that. It was yeah, excellent. I think, I think the the last third being slow maybe is not so much because of story, but because of how action-packed the middle part of the film was. It's like you get that big battle scene. You get everybody fighting. You get the whole city being destroyed you get them going through the sandstorm and all of that action and Duncan's uh, final battle and all of that stuff. And then you have the desert stuff. I think that's probably more so why it seems slow because you kind of had this period of calm after all of this chaos. It was a little slow, but it didn't bother me as much as I thought it would have. I think overall the pacing of the film once I got into it and I started really being able to understand like who the players were, how they were connected and what the story was, it was very well paced for me and I enjoyed it. Yeah. And I, I think most of it had to do with still having the memory of the 1984 film because mm. I had, we had just watched it okay. not too long mm. ago. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and the second, third, the, the, the last third of that movie moves so fast. Fast. So fast. Yeah, they Everything just, happens whoop. so fast. Yeah, they just, they, they're here one minute, next minute, they're doing, I'm the key front how to write movie ends. Yeah. It, it, they zip through it. And I think that was still in my recent memory. Mm-hmm. So when they got to the, the, thir- the final third of this movie, I was sitting there waiting, okay, when is this going to happen? When is, and it wasn't happening fast enough. And I think they had a lot to do with it, but I, I didn't think it was slow. It just, I just feel like it was just kind of yeah. stretched, okay. which, I, which is sort of kind of a different feeling for me. It just, it just seemed like it was stretched out, not necessarily slow. That, that one part where they show Paul having the dream with his mother and he, they're showing him in the gold armor and on the golden path and they were showing there's a religious war in my father's name and all that. They could have cut that out because then that leaves questions on, well, what's the second half going to be? And I agree everything that Anthony said. It was, it was one of those things where you got 84 in your head and you're expecting things and then you see what they did and you're like, okay. But, you know, Anthony, I agree with you 100%. What about you, Mike? You over there fighting to stay away. <laughs> oh, no, I'm good. I'm doing um, cast comparisons. Like, for example... Um, Dr. Kynes was played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, a very, very yeah. nice looking black woman. In the 84 movie, it was played by Max von Sydow, which is a very big. Yep. Oh, yep. 
Well, th this is small. You know, slight. You, it, you yeah. know, if you if you slight. squint yeah. and turn your head, you will ne you'll never notice. You'll be fine. And Dr. Yui was played by our boy from uh, Quantum Leap. Dean uh, yeah, Stockwell. Dean right. Stockwell, who I love in okay. Battlestar Galactica. That whole Orbs eyes speech in Galactica just gets yeah. me every time. And see, that's the thing, because the, the 84 had some really heavy, heavy, heavy hitters in it that were B characters that became A characters. Patrick Stewart went on to become John Luke right. Dean Stockwell, Quantum I mean, Jose Lee, Ferrer, Linda Galactica. Hunt. Jose Ferrer, Linda Hunt. Kyle yes, McLaughlin. Exactly. Actually, in the, in the 1984 movie, Kyle McLaughlin met David Lynch because David Lynch had an uncredited part as a spice worker. So that's so yes, they, they and, met and, and David and, Lynch wrote Twin Peaks that, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Twins and Blue Velvet and all yeah. this other stuff. And, and, and Kyle McLaughlin was 24 when the filming started. He was 25 when they finished. He was 26 when it came out. And that was a month before he found out that his mother was sick. So his mother actually got to see him in his very first starring role oh, before she yeah. passed What away. is it with, with people in the past being like 25 and looking like they're 36? I don't know. Because I was the oldest 15-year-old I've seen in my life. That was kind of the trend back then. <laughs> I was like, why did he, he look like, he looked the same age that he did in Twin Peaks in here. And it was like, because I, I, I didn't know that he was supposed to be like young until like people told me actually about the book. And I was like, he's supposed to be how old? Right. You're supposed to be 15. He was supposed to be a 25-year-old Kyle McLaughlin was supposed to be 15. Well, I mean, think about <laughs> it back then. Ralph Macchio playing Daniel. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, yep. 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 I just want to say one thing I want to say is since we're talking about casting real quick, the casting in this movie was superb. I think all the performances were great. I can't think of anyone who didn't have a solid performance. They did. They all did. In this yes. movie. And a Everybody was great. Even Jason Momoa did a really good Jason Momoa. He was I'll really give him for Jason good. Momoa. And Josh yeah. Brolin. He was like Thanos, but kind of muted. It That's was fine. Uh, I'll trade myself. Spoke, every time no. he spoke, that was all I pictured in my head. I was like, okay, stop, Hanukkah, stop. It's like, Gurney, are <laughs> and, you smiling? Gurney, Dave smile. Was great. I am smiling. I mean, he was just. I am smiling. Yeah, just, but they didn't have. Oh, that was my oh, other thing. Oh. No ink vine scar on Gurney's face. We need the ink vine scar. Okay, and, and, and Stellan Skarsgård was absolutely yeah, was. brilliant he was always, and, didn't see enough of him yeah, though and that one scene when he when he was doing this and i was yeah, saying oh my yeah. apocalypse really now. Like yep. Brando. Yep. Yep. Like, yep. Was, it, yep yeah and they said that was, he based it they said i was reading an article before we got on that he based his performance off of barlin brando in apocalypse now yeah Okay. It was excellent. But we, again, we didn't we didn't see enough of him. We didn't see enough of David Batista's yeah. beast. I mean, I have a feeling we'll see more of them in the next one. Though. We are. You will. You will. And shout, also shout to the sandworm doing a nice imitation of a standing sarlacc, which is yet an, yet another <laughs> yet another Star Wars reference just laying right there. Oh, like, what, I'm, I'm when do we when do we Lucas got the Sarlax from? But they did a good. They did uh, the the scene that they did. It was very subtle. They didn't do a shot out mate. So they did it when they drew the Chris knives. When you draw a Chris knife, you have to draw blood. If you notice before they each put the knife back, they each cut themselves a little bit on the wrist. I love that detail. Yeah, I saw that. I'm interested to see in the next movie. Like what other like because yeah, I mean as we've discussed. Frank Herbert's book inspired a good portion, over half 
of the science fiction that we see or have seen since it's been written since its inception. So it'll be interesting to see what other um, parallels we see drawn in the next movie in a year, year and a half, however long it takes. Oh yeah, 2023. So I think they're supposed to start shooting sometime early in 2022, which if you think about it- They said fall of 2022. Okay, so what I I want to know is how did they think they weren't going to do a part two of this? I'm surprised they didn't film at the same time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I thought they filmed it at the same time is what I thought they should have been doing because you were already on location. And, you know, Timothy Chalamet could go through a whole thing where he, like, gains, like, 50 pounds and then you start filming and he looks different. And people are going to be like, that's not the same guy. I'm like, it is the same guy. And well, it's like, you he, know, I mean, every, everybody's going to, I mean, he could actually go through puberty. Well, he he does need to be older in the second half of the movie but even then it's only by three or four years i mean i don't know how old the kid is in real life but like you said somebody's in his 20s yeah he is yeah Yeah. he's old wow he just skipped over him big time didn't it wow Y'all will not have my Twitter blowing up with talking about. I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean it that way. My TikTok, they could post all the videos they want. I I didn't. I didn't mean it that way. All the smoke. What What I meant was that he still looks like he's a teenager, and I couldn't believe you said he was in his 20s. He still looks like he's a kid. And near 30. I didn't. He's 26. And near 30. Oh, he's 25. I didn't mean any. I didn't mean any body shaming or anything like that. He just looks like a really young kid. I'm just saying that. It, to wait a whole another year to start filming is like taking a chance with you know it's just like people change not necessarily especially if you're under contract believe me he's under contract to keep his weight the same his looks the same he probably can't cut his mm, hair so yeah. yeah they put them under contract for stuff like mm, that so. okay yeah no i didn't mean anything negative i'm just saying that he looks really really young he looks like paul should be in the book 15. Oh, yeah. Okay. Any other final thoughts? The training or schooling that he was getting when they were doing it, like the um, the holograms were really cool, especially when the little hunter was, was coming after him and he was walking through the projection and it was like kind of final, like going over him. I thought it was, I thought that was dope. I, it, just like the effects and cinematography on this were just like a, like a hundred percent just grade A, like perfect like chef's kiss it was it was beautiful i can't wait to see what they do with the next one it's gonna be dope i cannot wait to see who's gonna be cast in certain roles i cannot wait to see because alicia witt played alia in the 1984 movie i cannot wait to see who they're gonna get as alia and how, what age they're gonna have alia as i cannot wait to see fire uh wraith i cannot see wait to see the emperor i want to i want to see a friggin navigator okay i want to see him in their little glass little train thing i want to see the 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 face all screwed up i want to see a navigator they have to do that other dream cast one dream class jose farrar played the emperor his nephew is george clooney hello i mean whoever plays alaya has to be one in a million oh god and on that note that's it for our show (laughs) You can find us online at www.phantomhybrid.com. We are on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Phantom Hybrid. You can listen to the Phantom Hybrid podcast on all major podcast streaming platforms. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you join the conversation next time.